Hello and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I'm Duran. I'm Nick. I'm Rhett. I'm the guest today. I've been on the show before. Uh, I write movie reviews for the Emery Wheel. And today we'll be discussing the films and some of the other works of David Lynch, one of America's most celebrated film auteurs currently alive today. And believing in the auteur theory. Auteur theory is real, Nick. <laughs> anyway, as um, you were. And we're, we're going to be talking about pretty much all David Lynch's filmography. So it's going to be kind of like unstructured, but... A good place to start would probably be his first film, Eraserhead. So, yeah, I, I'm i a big proponent of if you're going to watch David Lynch, I think you should start with Eraserhead. It's his cult favorite, um, and I think it's, it's a great look at sort of where his sensibilities are, where he comes from as, you know, a, um, he originally started in his art roots with painting, um, and you can see a lot of that in the set design there. Um, you know, you could argue that it's maybe his weirdest film, or also maybe not. I think it's a good middle ground to give you a, a sort of idea where his sensibilities are at, but then you could maybe find some films of his that you might like more if Eraserhead isn't your particular taste. But it is one of my favorites. So if you're not familiar with Eraserhead, um, it is a sort of surrealist nightmare-ish uh, horror movie, as people like to call it, uh, about... Um, a man named Henry, who is played by the incredible Jack Nance, um, as he is unexpectedly has to deal with the uh, birth of a child out of wedlock. But the child is sort of this, you know, mutated, sort of sickly kind of monster baby thing. And it's just a whole sort of nightmarish musing on the anxieties in becoming a parent. At least that's sort of the obvious thing to take away. With any of David Lynch's work, you can interpret it a lot of different ways, and that's sort of the whole crux of it. But if, if there's one thing you take away from Eraserhead, it should probably be that. Yeah, um, I've seen Eraserhead. Like David Lynch is terrified of being a father. Yep, makes sense considering he has five children, and all of them were <laughs> accidents, apparently. Oh my god. <laughs> um, I've seen Eraserhead like a million times by now. I mean, it's probably one of my most watched films. And yeah, every single time, like, there's new things I find. I appreciate it a little bit more. It's really gone from being this kind of, like, weird-ass movie that I think about from time to time to just being, like, one of my all-time favorites. Um, it was actually... I don't remember if I watched Dune or Eraserhead first. One of those is my first David Lynch film. Um, I think it was Dune, actually. But I guess Eraserhead <laughs> is my first, like good david lynch film um but yeah when i wa I watched it like when i was i don't know maybe like 13 or something and i was just like what the fuck is going on i don't know what's happening but it's pretty fucking cool yeah i think yeah my my first experience with Eraserhead, despite the fact that i was like a fully competent adult i don't think a lot of the fatherhood stuff somehow got through to me i was just so mesmerized by what the fuck i was looking at i was just like you know because it just like it, it starts off and it's it's just it's relentless it's like you start with that big reese's puff in space you know <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah you start there you start there and it's just like oh fuck what am i watching <laughs> I would argue yeah. that with like all of Lynch's films, well, not all of them, but uh, most of them, 
Um, you really need to rewatch them to, I guess, come up with some kind of interpretation or like a take. Yeah, I have, I have you no know? idea what Mulholland Drive is about still. Oh, really? Huh. I mean, I mean, I have some vague idea, but like I've seen it twice, I think. So I'm, you know. Hmm. You never, you never have a pat explanation for yourself on most Lynch films. I feel. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think like the better part though is when like you watch a film by him and like you have a pretty solid interpretation, and then you watch it again like a, like a year or two later, and it's completely different. It just upends it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing's better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like definitely. Yeah. The first time I watched it, Racerhead, I didn't get anything about fatherhood. I'm just like, there's a weird man with a big, with big hairdo. Yeah, I started the return for like the third time, and and I just I view it completely differently now. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Anyway, we're talking about Eraserhead. Let's get back yeah, to yeah. that. Um, well, and since everyone else said like the first time they watched it, I watched it for the first time this summer. Uh, I I just sat down with Nick and was like, okay, show me a David Lynch movie, and we just watched Eraserhead and. I was like, whoa, and then I just ended up... I, I didn't intend immediately after that to, like, basically speed run through David Lynch's work, but just as the year progressed, like, there was a discussion at my school uh, about Mulholland Drive, so I watched that, and then I started watching Twin Peaks because y'all were recommending it, and then just I just started watching all of his work. <laughs> and yeah. it's all fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah I, so I would argue he doesn't have a single bad film. I think Dune in and of itself is a masterpiece for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, you you can certainly see what his interests were in Dune. Just to touch on that briefly before we get back to Eraserhead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot we could say about Dune, but I think for right now we'll we should keep it. We'll, we'll 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 get to Dune. We'll get to Dune. Yeah. Um, but so I mean, I think one of the big takeaways, especially on my first watch of Eraserhead. Was just the sound design, which he all he does the sound design for all of his movies, but they're particularly yep. like the lack of music in a lot of places, and just the insistency on like the background sounds of like blowing wind and like old pipes and just machinery. It just really completes the atmosphere of this black and white sort of, you know, dystopia. Mm -hmm. And the train horns. Don't forget about the train horns. Mm -hmm. I love those. Those they're so like haunting sounding too. They make it. They make it sound like it's. He makes it sound like almost like a like a screech almost, and it's just it's a very unnerving sound. When of course it couldn't be a normal train horn. Yeah, I, I would argue that um, it does still kind of like have a soundtrack, but it's definitely not a traditional one. Uh, yeah, it's more of like a like a weird ambient kind of thing. Ominous um, whooshing. Ominous whooshing, yeah. But it's, it's it it is actually really interesting to watch like divorced from the film because like a lot of care and work went into it. Um, if if you like kind of listen to it, uh, like outside of the film, that that's what I noticed. I think for a Razorhead, the reason I like it so much is because of the environment it creates. Um, so like first of all, the places that he ch chose to like shoot like the exteriors are like amazing. Like there's a part. Um, early in the film and I come, kind of like comes around some later parts where like Henry's walking past this like abandoned like factory I think and there's like these like old like rusty ass pipes everywhere that just looks like yeah. absolutely beautiful um, like Red mentioned the sound design is 
uh, it's really amazing. Uh, the the you can like really like get a feel for the film's texture, um, be it like individual objects or um, like uh, it it feels like a like a like a sensory experience. Like all all of your yeah. senses are like stimulated when you watch that film. Oh well, this, yeah. I th I think it has it it was definitely the first to show off his kind of obsession with the horrifyingly beautiful mm -hmm. i'd say is it just like everything in there is like there's it is weird it is very like out there but there's there is a uh, sort of beauty to it all it's just so chaotic and yet wonderful all at the same time it's i don't know yeah it's sort of hard to describe and sort of touching on what Duran said about it being a sensory experience, he seems like to me to be a very tactile director. And I think you can see that in his other work. Like I, I watched the other night, the documentary, David Lynch, the art life, which I can maybe talk more about later, but you can see there, like, even when he's working with his paintings, he does a lot like with his hands and not with brushes. So he clearly cares about being able to like touch the environment and the fact that he did all of the, set design for this i mean he worked in a like a, a stable for five years on this and he was just he said this was like the happiest that was that eraser was the only film they talked about in that documentary because he talked about like his childhood and it basically ended the documentary like right after Eraserhead. um but he said like that was one of the happiest you know film experiences he had and of course there's the famous quote where he said Eraserhead is his most spiritual film and then refused to <laughs> explain that <laughs> um but so yeah i definitely think the the aspect of it being a sensory experience was was very important to lynch because this was clearly a very visceral anxiety that he had mm -hmm. yeah he is he has a way with putting you know sound with images yep um to touch on what nick said earlier this idea of uh like finding a beauty and like these like weird gross environments I, I i like read and hear like a lot about how lynch's films um deal with like both good and evil um as like these two like necessary aspects for for life and therefore like he tries to focus both in the beauty of good and the beauty of evil so um like uh, I think a good example of that would would be like Twin Peaks and it would be Blue Velvet and that like he chooses to focus on like the uh, the beautiful um, uh, like suburban town of Blue Velvet but also like and show it, he also like shows like it's seedy underbelly so like in the first the shot just behind the beauty yeah exactly but like there is kind of this sense that like both of these things are like strangely beautiful so like even someone like Dennis Hopper's character in that film, there's like some like a kind of like beauty to him and like his like strangeness. I don't know. Like like there's definitely yeah. like something like attractive to him. And I think um one of the main points of like that film is how um like Colin McLaughlin's character is drawn to this like seedy underbelly, you know? Like he also yeah. gets kind of like transfixed by like this this beauty. And he really becomes like this voyeur. And that really, like, um, I came to this realization, like, more on the second watch, that he's kind of, like, the vessel for the audience 
to be attracted to this like kind of like grossness and evil um i don't know i i, I think I, I talked to this film with what I talked about this film with one of my professors and he gave me like this pretty interesting um, perspective on it that it's it kind of comments on um, like the inherent voyeuristic nature of cinema from an like audience perspective mm-hmm. because uh, it, it was like I guess one of the one of the reasons why it was so jarring on release was certainly like its sexual content and like its um, how like provocative it was but I think also a big aspect of that is how it kind of like grabs the audience by the collar and um, like forces them into this like uncomfortable state where they become like aware of their own voyeuristic nature yeah yeah I mean, that certainly seems to be a popular in- interpretation of a lot of um, uh, movies that are kind of heralded as some of the greatest movies on... Uh, yeah, like Rear uh, Window also is a good example of that. Yeah, uh, Rear Window, e- even um, Vertigo as well. Like, they're, it, like I think film scholars seem to really like movies about movies. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's why they're obsessed with movies like, about Hollywood, too. Yeah. Um, which, you know, David Lynch certainly falls into that category in a lot of ways, but he does it better than arguably a lot of other directors, so, yeah, you know, credit where credit is due. Um, but Eraserhead, I, I think, is rather detached from uh, a lot of his other interests. I, I think you can certainly find similarities in other movies, perhaps maybe uh, Inland Empire, and, and of course some of the, you know, idiosyncrasies in stuff like Twin Peaks and just how good he is at making like a small place into its own entire world. I think he described sort of those interests of his in the documentary. Um, but I, I do think there is kind of like no movie you'll find that is like Eraserhead. Eraserhead kind of is almost a singular experience, as least at least as far as I know. I don't know. Maybe like Fando Elise by Jodorowsky. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe I don't know. There's not a screen. I feel like this. Is... Yeah, this is. I feel like this is a. This is a more visceral experience than Fondo Elise. There's a lot of strange imagery in Fondo Elise, but it's still somewhat grounded in Earth. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's hard to hard to say. Um, uh, I was watching this video of um, these guys who like reacted to seeing uh, Eraserhead for the first time, like in '77. Like these like students and like some guy said um it reminded me a lot of early fellini but uh i like i like fellini more i just thought that was funny <laughs> yeah because <laughs> like, uh, i don't see I the comparisons the... at all <laughs> I, watched, I watched a video of uh, siskel and ebert reacting to a razor head and they just like did not seem to to get it they were they were just kind of like this seems like a very like gross out kind of thing that college kids would like and i'm like okay I mean, they're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it, to- yeah. it definitely is yeah. like a gross out thing college kids would like, but it's definitely more. We than are, that in too. fact, the audience they are talking about. Yeah. But it is, yeah. it is, yeah, it is definitely more than that as well. I mean, like, Ebert himself has been kind of like sketchy on Lynch's films from, from what I remember. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I remember like famously uh, Ebert kind of like, like panned Blue Velvet while like Siskel said it was really good. Yeah, he was like very upset about, um, like, he accused Lynch of like, uh like sexually abusing uh Rossellini or like something like that like just totally just 
being a terrible director to her and Isabella Rossellini was like no I'm fine with this like what <laughs> this, is, this is my performance what are you talking about yeah, I, that was, that was I think funny. I think maybe Ebert I don't know maybe he maybe he, he put Isabella Rossellini on a pedestal I don't want to put words in Ebert's mouth he's a yeah. great critic but um well every every critic misses from time to time yeah no certainly no one's perfect except for um me. obviously um yeah, okay. i had something else to say about eraserhead but it is it has slipped my mind so if either of you have any more thoughts about eraserhead um i like the baby the baby the baby's very disgusting looking and i like it i like the baby's yeah. guts yeah <laughs> i oh my god i i like how i like how nick put it um we have this friend who knows about the eraser head baby and keeps on just wanting to skip to the eraser head baby and he's like no you have to earn that baby and i'm like yeah that's kind <laughs> of like the whole thing because it was it's 30 minutes before it shows up yeah you, uh, you yeah. have to wait to see that baby <laughs> I mean, the film definitely earns like everything it does. Like, if you talk about like films like being unnecessary, oh, absolutely, weird, it doesn't. It like, didn't need to earn anything. It was like from the I beginning, mean, it, it's just yeah, like no. such a different experience. Mm -hmm. It's really like hard to take your eyes off the screen, I'd say, because there's always like some some weird shit going on. But it's also like really intriguing, and there's like yeah. this this like constant sense of like anxiety going through the film that really like pulls you in. Um. Speaking of which, like, I think, like, the dinner scene um, is, like, one of, maybe, it might be my favorite scene, like, in the entire film. Look at my knees. Look, Look at, at my, my knees. knees. Look at my knees. <laughs> it just perfectly captures the anxiety of, like, meeting the parents, you know? David Lynch's Get Out. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, the first no, time I saw I this movie, it. I was, like, 13, so I had, like, no idea, like, how that felt. Like. <laughs> when I, when oh, I, God. when I, um, when I, like, got older... Um, after seeing that, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty fucking accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like, because it just, like, like, from every bit of that, like, from what the dad is saying, like, that old kind of, I don't want to say boomer at risk of using a sort of worn out term, but, like, how he just comes in and he's like, I put every pipe in this town. <laughs> and he's, like, complaining about how, like, everything has gone to shit and how, like, when back in his day, the town was so much better, even though, it's like, it's probably never been much better than that because it looks kind of like a as beautiful as david lynch makes it you know it looks like kind of a terrible place to be through <laughs> yeah <and> through. <laughs> yeah that's true um up to like it's, it's the... what it's philadelphia isn't it like they say it's like i uh, think they, they say, say it... that it's well no, or at so least it was, that it's like outside of philadelphia it was inspired by david lynch's time in philadelphia which he hated philadelphia mm. he said it was really good for him that he was there because it inspired him so much but it was just such a shitty experience for him mm, yeah like the concrete uh, jungle yeah but um no this was made after he got his uh grant um from the american film institute and um i think he was in i mean this took him a long time to make he didn't even like finish it i think by the time he finished like his whole film studies thing but he was working on it in that time in like the stables and there's actually like a video of him and uh jack nance going to like the tunnel from that one scene in eraserhead so they shot it in la but i do think they were trying to make it out to be philadelphia mm, i see yeah i know but like I, I i say that because i think there is a point in the movie where he's like where do you work and it's like outside philadelphia so i think that i do believe that they say like 
kind of explicitly in some part that <laughs> this hellscape is Philadelphia. That's funny, which, I remember that. Which makes sense with David Lynch's back, because, I mean, this this more or less, you know, kind of, I, I hesitate to call it autobiographical, obviously, with all the horrible shit that happens, but it was certainly very reflective of stuff that was going on in his life, because he was in Philadelphia, he was an expectant father, at least at the time he came up with the idea. Uh, he hated the fuck out of Philadelphia, so kind of lines up, I guess. Yeah. 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 And then, then after this, he goes on to make uh, The Elephant Man, so do we want to talk about <laughs> that? Um, I, I'm down. Do you do you want to just move right on to the Elephant Man? Sure. I mean, do we have any closing thoughts about Eraserhead? I guess. Um, uh, it's really good. You should watch it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, like, uh, I, well, don't uh, skip right thing. to the baby. Don't do that. It, it yeah. It, it's I mean, it's I, really it is really a film you have to watch every like few years. Um, yeah, and it's. I, I also do kind of agree, like, it does kind of have that feel of, like, a, a sort of college film student rite of passage that, like, you gotta watch Eraserhead at some point, but it's it's good. Mm -hmm. I definitely think it, like, brings on so much more meaning as you get older. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about David Lynch's most boring film, The Elephant Man. I completely <laughs> agree. This is... I, I would not say it's his worst film. I think like you you have yeah. to give that to Dune just because it was a failure. Um, and some people might like the straight story less just because it's so normal. Straight. But yeah, but I I feel like this doesn't feel like David Lynch, and it's not a bad film by any means. But it's just like if you're there for Lynch, you're not really getting what you came for. Yeah, it's definitely not a badly made film. It just feels very like Oscar-y, you know. It really it feels yeah. like that kind of formula, like the the typical biopic formula, which is like guaranteed an Oscar every single time. Yeah, and he, I mean, he definitely like distinguishes himself a little bit with the style, but mm -hmm. it it not not enough, I'd say, or at least not not nearly as much as you know his other films. Yeah, but it but like I mean like 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 uh like a razor head, like it's shot beautifully. Mm -hmm. um the, the oh. use of the use of black and white here i think was was a really good idea yeah and i, oh, I, I, and I, like, I love like that like the uh, the contrast too because mm -hmm. like like it seems like kind of like a high contrast black and white you know yeah it, it feels like a bit like grimy um and like the kind of like eraser head way yeah um so i, I like how you went with that stylistically um this feels i think in a lot of ways like definitely sort of I don't know why I get vibes from like Hitchcock's British films. Maybe this just it's just because it's a black and white film that takes place in England. Um, but I really like the use in shadow mm -hmm. of shadows in this movie, and I like some of the the themes they're they're hitting on here. I think they they reach. I think it's probably one of the film's better aspects is that it has sort of a good sort of musing on the nature of you know fame whether positive or negative and what sort of effect that has on people hmm. yeah um yeah it yeah I, di I didn't like dislike that at all and i mean like uh in, in the film's like most famous part where um merrick is like surrounded by like all these like goons and he says like i'm not an animal i'm a human being like that part uh did touch me when i see that but at the same time like i don't consider it to be like particularly profound you know 
like this idea like this yeah. theme has been like done like a million times in film and other media and i guess like this one wasn't particularly interesting to me although certainly like it did like tug at my heartstrings mm-hmm. yeah i'll always have fond memories of this movie simply because it was the first david lynch movie that i watched wait really so... that's whack <laughs> yeah yeah this this was the... yeah i don't I don't know why this it just kind of happened this way i think um we watched it together right uh yeah but i mean it wasn't the first time i had watched it oh okay yeah this was the first david lynch movie i watched when i decided that i was going to start growing going through his films chronologically but i think i had seen uh dune uh Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and Eraserhead before I watched this movie. Mm. Mm. So yeah, I yeah, it, it it doesn't feel like Lynch. It's not a it's not a bad movie. Um, you know, it's yeah, I, I, I agree with the the Oscar baby sort of formula, even if I don't think Lynch is particularly interested in Oscars. Yeah, oh, I used not. to love this movie because it was the first one I was kind of exposed to, but like after seeing the rest of his movies, I'm like, this this doesn't really stack up. Yeah. It is, it is not to like say, Not even to say that it's a bad movie. It's just, you know... Yeah. Compared to the rest of it, it's just so much more like... A lot of it's just more visceral, more stylized, more... Um, you know, all, all the things that we've come to love about Lynch are not exactly present here. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I really enjoyed uh, Anthony Hopkins' performance here. It was it it was it felt really subtle in the sort of like level of conflict that he had. Like it didn't feel like it was hitting you over the head with oh like he feels guilty about you know the fact that he's kind of taking advantage of this person even though he wants to help him. I, I feel like he just played it really well. I don't know. He was kind of my favorite part of the film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, him and uh, and John Hurt as John Merrick. Uh, God, imagine having to wear all that makeup. Yeah. God, imagine being John Merrick, really. <laughs> Just like, poor guy. Yeah. Um, I think John Hurt had a worse trying to put on all that makeup. No, uh, <laughs> definitely. Uh, definitely. Um, no, but I just, yeah, it's, it is a very touching story, which... Um, Perhaps we can use this to segue on to the other very touching kind of normal movie that he did, that being <laughs> The Straight Story. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's not a bad place to go to The Straight Story. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I, I actually enjoy The Straight Story a lot. I mean, it, it, it's the same thing as uh, Elephant Man, where it's like, it's touching, but it's not very Lynch. But this this doesn't feel like lynch even in the slightest whereas the elephant man the elephant man definitely definitely felt a little bit lynch this just feels so out of place for david lynch and that's not necessarily a bad thing i actually think maybe... actually thought that it was um it definitely felt lynchian to me because of its humor I'd yeah um... and like its setting well i think first of all uh, i think we forgot to do this with elephant man um but a brief summary for anyone who is not familiar with the straight story um the straight story is um a story about a man named straight (laughs) um and that's the movie no um 
And so he's going to visit his brother. Um, who is his brother sick? Yeah, his uh, brother just had a heart attack, and so he, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. so he, um, he is going to ride his uh, motorized lawnmower all the way like across state lines to go visit his brother. So if that doesn't give you a clue as to how slowly paced this movie is going to be, uh, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's a, well, one of the things, just one of the things that makes this interesting is that it's a G rated movie coming from David Lynch, (laughs) a man who has almost exclusively made R rated movies. If not all of them are R rated except for this one. Yeah. He really likes his provocative material. This one's also streaming now on Disney plus. Yep. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, this is the way that me and Rhett watched it was finding it on Disney Plus. Oh nice. And to that we say all those poor souls who find the straight story on Disney Plus just out of on a whim. Uh, uh, the, uh, why what is this? Why is this here? Why is this on my Disney streaming service? <laughs> um I I think it felt in a weird way, it felt more Lynchian to me than um, uh, than Elephant Man, not only because of its sense of humor, but because of all the long takes in this. Because you have some really long takes here, like either on the, you know, the lawnmower or at the bar, where it's just this man who, let me, I, I should credit the actor, so let me double check his name. Um... But just where you get to absorb his uh, yeah, Richard, Richard Farnsworth. Farnsworth yeah, uh, and it's it's kind of awesome in a way, and that's why I feel like I end up liking this movie more than Elephant Man, even though I feel like it's probably easier to like Elephant Man more because it fits that Oscar formula that people who maybe aren't as familiar with David Lynch might just appreciate more off the bat. But I I think you can see, like, when you start thinking about, well, what drew David Lynch to this story other than, I guess, Disney was paying him to make it? Um, You know, I I think actually, I think think the story is that uh, Disney picked it up afterwards. (laughs) I think I think they got the distribution rights is uh, was what happened. I think he he did make this on his own. And then they just kind of came in and were like, yeah, we'll we'll uh, distribute it. I was curious about something you said earlier, Red. Yeah, I definitely agree that it does feel pretty lynching to me, at least when I saw it. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I don't really remember. But you said that like it uses a lot of long takes. Is that like something that Lynch does a lot? Uh, I I think so. I think he knows when to use a long take, and you know, I mean, you know, clearly in the Return, he does a lot of long takes where it's just kind of characters, you know, just moving very slowly. Um, I don't think it's always necessarily his modus operandi that he uses long takes, but I feel like his the way he uses long takes feels distinct, and the he uses a lot of long takes in the straight story. So, mm. I guess I didn't notice yeah. that when I watched it. Interesting. Uh, and they're not always they're not always like noticeable long takes. They they may just be long extended shots of something not necessarily anything interesting just lingering 
Mm. And I think that's that's maybe why. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that. I you could go like immediately if you're looking for another sort of example. You know, the scene in the return when the guy's just sweeping up the roadhouse. Like, yeah, that's that's the only one I could think of besides uh, what you mentioned. Um. Well, certainly Henry waiting in the elevator in. Oh, uh, true. Yeah. In a racer head. Yeah. Um. I don't know why I'm struggling to call these. I don't think there were a lot of long takes in Dune, especially since that movie just felt like it was speed running the book so much. <laughs> um, Have you read the book, Red? Uh, yes, I finished the book last summer. Oh, uh, cool. Big it's fan. Same uh, um, yeah, I think we've talked about it a little bit. I think when we talked about Tenet because of the, oh, the trailer. Right. Yeah, for, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, well, I won't waste time trying to think of lynching long takes I, I mean i think there are other if i wanted to say i think there are a lot of times where like you know at the very least it's like a long take of a woman screaming whether it's fire walk with me or inland empire or something like that like there are at least a lot of those i think he's very committed to letting giving at important moments his acting long. yeah mm-hmm. well and also give, giving his actors long takes to you know let the audience appreciate you know their performance because he clearly just has so much love and respect for like all the actors he works with oh yeah um, for sure so i i think that's probably some of the re- especially in this movie like probably why he did so many long takes was just letting people absorb the mm-hmm. performance something interesting that he does with his actors is that um i mean lynch's films are notoriously uh like esoteric and like he doesn't even really give actors much direction as to like what's going on like what's happening in the story um he does like let them know like their emotional states of course but it it, like leaves a lot of he leaves a lot of like um the stakes and like what's going on up to like the actor's interpretation um and and, like you know you need to have like a lot of respect for your actors if you're gonna do that because you know it can easily go horribly wrong but i mean i would i would say that like uh of all i mean i've seen all david lynch's movies and yeah definitely the performances are some of the best parts of it like um jack nance in eraserhead of course uh cheryl lee and firewalk with me yeah i mean all of his leads are just like they all they're all very distinct from one another which is very good very nice I mean, he clearly just has a good approach to them. Like, I've watched some behind the scenes on, like, The Return. And, yeah, just seeing how he talks to his actors. Like, he def- he talks, he seems like he talks them through, like, the whole sort of emotional state. And he's really good about yeah. just helping them get to that place where they need to go. There's, um, if you have a Criterion subscription, or you can probably find the video online somewhere. But the video of him and Naomi Watts talking about Mulholland Drive, um, there was, like, she talked about him directing the scene where she's masturbating and how like uncomfortable that was for her as an actor but how he made it like like that scene only could have worked with lynch directing it because it was just such a weird scene which i guess we can get to more when we talk about mulholland drive but if we're talking about you know how lynch works with his actors then i think that's a pretty good example of like his approach i remember seeing that video and being like really uncomfortable when they're talking about that (laughs) scene i felt like really bad for naomi watts I almost felt like she, I, she was like pressured to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really know one way or the other about that. But I mean, she seems proud of her performance now, at least. Obviously, if any sus shit went on, which I'm not saying there is or isn't, you know, because I don't really know. But like, it's if probably there was... not because 
that seems yeah. like a pretty good working relationship and i don't oh, yeah, i don't sure. think you would yeah, yeah they've been, I, I, she's she's been in um since then inland empire and also in uh return i think the return yeah she was in inland empire yeah she's one of the rabbits oh yeah. really no yeah. way <laughs> that's crazy yeah i don't oh, remember I if that. she's like in the costume or just doing the voice but she is in inland empire she's credited that's crazy um yeah naomi and watts might be one of my uh i i think i can maybe like divide it into like lynch actors that i'm fond of just like oh yeah i i think they're cool or i really like the characters they play but she's probably one of my favorite lynch actors in terms of the performances she gives in the movie because her performance in uh in mulholland drive and some of the scenes where she just absolutely kills it in the return like i just yeah naomi watts is great in lynch movies mm -hmm. i haven't seen a lot of her other stuff so especially in mulholland but... drive i love like how there's this transition from like this really like over the top kind of like ditzy like innocent newcomer to hollywood um which is like you know the idealized reality versus like mm -hmm. you know this kind of um like disheveled and like nihilistic person at the end yeah uh man when, when we get around to talking about mulholland drive i will yeah that one's fun um maybe going back to the straight story um one of the thoughts i had there is sort of i think it's impressive i guess nick said maybe just just picked up distribution i think it's impressive how like david lynch has kind of managed to work with like sort of everyone <laughs> in the film industry because mm -hmm. like you know he's done independent uh i think universal did blue velvet and then uh was it mgm you know, that did universal Elephant did a uh, mulholland drive oh, and they okay. also did dune oh they did dune okay um i think yeah. mgm did uh elephant man who did blue velvet i think that was universal too yeah well the fact is like he is really really respected throughout the industry um, yeah i mean like all of his actors say so even like those that haven't like worked with him directly you know show a lot mm -hmm. of respect like he, he's definitely like one of the most influential directors like working today um on you know yeah. people and working in hollywood right now well i just think it's it's particularly interesting because i think other directors like tend to you know find a studio that likes them or that they like and they stick with it you know perhaps you know like tarantino and miramax um like nolan wb yeah, well, doesn't doesn't Nolan? Oh, well, yeah, that's Warner Brothers. Sorry, he, I was thinking of his production company or whatever, um, Syncope, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I just enough think about it, Nolan. We're talking about cinema here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just think it's interesting that David Lynch sort of has managed to work with like everyone, even up to now, with you know the fact that Twin Peaks streams on Netflix and that he made What the Jack Do and that he is supposedly working on a series with netflix right now god i hope so god i hope Please. so at the same time Please. though like if lynch makes nothing else after the return i'll be kind of satisfied but yeah i want that's more fair. I, I want more shit from him <laughs> i mean i i don't i don't think he could do something that would you know uh like Maybe he can make something that's better than the return. It would be very hard to imagine, but if there's anyone who can do it, he can. It is. Um, um, I, I meant that more of a. It feels like very like elegiac. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that like the Irishman feels very like elegiac for Scorsese. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, 
Well, yeah, I think if he's working on something with Netflix, there's got to be something he's interested in. And he said that, um, you know, if he's open to the possibility of doing another season of Twin Peaks, um, you know, if he felt like it. So, you know, I think if if he is working, he probably has some inspiration there. And I, I definitely agree that uh, the return has a sort of elegiac feel to it, so maybe that could sort of mess with it. But I think as long as he's interested in something, you know, he'll make it work. I'll watch anything he does, man. Yeah. Um, I guess, do we have any last thoughts about uh, the straight story before we move on to the next one? I'll be honest, I do not remember this film at all. Except for the <laughs> ending. The ending is really good. I love the oh, ending. Oh yeah, we didn't talk about Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, I love, I love how uh, his brother just turns out to be Harry Dean Stanton. And then like, what the, like, the first makeup. line yeah and like the first line of the credits is like and also starring harry dean stanton right mm-hmm. that's so funny literally the three people listed as starring in this movie on wikipedia are richard farns ruth sissy spacek and harry dean stanton <laughs> for his like 10 seconds of footage oh it's great i love it my god but like oh harry dean what a guy mm-hmm. yeah we can probably talk about him more in some of lynch's other stuff but um, I mean, it's it's just nice to see him, you know. It's always it's always good to see him, you know, it's, wherever it's, he pops up. Not even not even Lynch alone. But anyway, yeah, it's nice to see where Brett took his shares. <laughs> yeah, Brett. All right, uh, from Alien. Uh, from oh. Alien, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do we want to talk about Dune now? Speaking of sci-fi, sure. David Lynch's yeah, best man. film, Dune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the film that made Alejandro Jodorowsky proud. <laughs> Dude, it's such uh, a weird film. I, because, I, like, I feel like, yeah, it, you have to be, like, a really specific person to appreciate it. You have to be, like, a diehard Lynch fan and also, like, familiar with Dune. Because I think that, like, if you're just one of these things, it's, like, difficult to appreciate the film. And don't yeah, get me wrong. What I understand... Because, like, the film is, like, fucking terrible, right? But <laughs> the reason why it's so interesting is because, like, um, it's just so weird that it exists. Because, like, it feels like um, this, like, kind of, like, shitty, like, sci-fi blockbuster um, that, like, Rhett said before, like, speedruns, like, the plot of Dune. But is also, like, a David Lynch film at the same time. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. that's what I enjoy about it is that you you know you can clearly see what what interested him in this project, you know, and and why it, it drew the attention of both, um, you know, Jodorowsky and Lynch, um, other than being a cult sci-fi hit, um, that has just become a, a sci-fi hit at this point, at least the book. Um, uh, so short summary, I guess. Uh, Dune is a famous sci-fi book that people have been trying to make forever. Uh, if you want the actual summary of the story, go read the book. Take yeah. you like three months though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a um, big book. That's, that's actually one of the things that's one of the things I've I've heard about this movie is that I I don't know about all of you, but like I guess you have to have be a little bit familiar with the story of Dune to actually comprehend it. Which yeah. I didn't even realize that I was. It makes I, no <laughs> sense otherwise. It makes literally no sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, also, like, I, even to Dune fans, it kind of makes no sense because they, they just kind of throw a lot of shit in around in there. 
and it's just like what is going on when you give them two hours for 600 pages this is what happens yep uh but uh despite all of its shortcomings one of the things that i absolutely love about this film is the um just all of the set design all of the oh that's great all of the set work and all of the production design just the whole thing is like despite it all there was so much like care and effort put into so much of this movie Mm -hmm. and it really it it doesn't always show there are some bad effects but like when it works it really works Mm -hmm. i mean yeah just some of like the palaces and stuff like that like i was like how like you know they talked about the the budget for jodorowsky's dune and even here where like you know arguably it it wouldn't have been as impressive as as what jodorowsky was planning like still like how did they afford this yeah yeah like Uh, where were they especially because like the book doesn't really say a lot about how things are supposed to look really um Mm -hmm. most of the book like takes place in the characters heads so um this like translation of uh, the book onto screen, I think, was really like impressive, um, just like just visually, because everything looks really good except for the shields. <laughs> yeah, the, the shield. shield. <laughs> uh, speaking of things manifesting in their head, uh, since that happens a lot in the book, and there's so much, so much of the content of the writing that is critically praised is like internal monologue. They have the characters internally monologuing oh god it's so bad like some weird like asmr like whisper kind of thing where you just hear kyle (laughs) being like they know about the spice yeah that (laughs) it was was so bad (laughs) there's there's something like charming to it though it's like it's you're like not expecting it so you're just like what is this why is this here and you're just sort of like left confused by it, but in its in your confusion, you're like a little bit charmed by. It. At least for me, I was like, I was just like, this is so stupid. I love that this is here. Yeah, kinda. I think it also shows like the weird sort of like uncanny valley effect because there, you know, there's a lot of like anime type stuff and cartoons where like a lot of stuff takes in their takes place in their head, but because it's animated you know they can either make it look more sort of visually interesting to see what's going on in the characters heads or like you just don't really care because it's animated so you don't really care that it doesn't look natural you just kind of buy into that but here like you see like actual actors in real time trying to like act out you know while they're imagining this internal monologue going through (laughs) their heads and it's just so awkward so i think you know anyone who's begging for like some certain live action anime movies like that's probably why it's not gonna work <laughs> dune is an anime dune dune is yeah, an anime. anime when when is hbo max releasing the dune anime that's my question isn't it supposed it's... to come out like in october yeah uh yeah it seems like everything's getting an anime too like how, I would be guys, how are we reviewing dune it's not out yet how are we here? Uh, I read I read Jodorowsky's script. That's that's Damn. how we're reviewing Dune. Damn. I want that fucking book. I don't know why he's released it, yet, man. Don't I, I would buy that immediately. Yeah. Dude, they'd make a fortune off of nerds who just want that stupid book. 
It's like five thousand dollars. <laughs> I know. It's it's like it's it's such a thick looking book. If anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky attempted to make Dune and basically like pre made it before he made it. And it's just this giant book of like everything that was going to happen. Mostly story storyboards boards and designs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of like everything. But anyway. If you uh, want a little bit more info on that, you can probably check out the episode we did on uh Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain, as well as just sort of talking about his other work as well. Because we definitely talked about Jodorowsky's Dune there, because that was very important for his sort of career as a filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. Hell All right. Yeah. So, uh, any any more thoughts about Dune? Uh, the fact that well, considering shows up there for like a couple seconds. I try not to think about <laughs> Dune too much. The uh, seeing as we moved on to Jodorowsky's Dune while we were talking about David Lynch's <laughs> Dune, I think we are. Uh, I, mean, no, I think we're safe subject, to move on. The whole subject of Dune, as you know, sort of a book and as something that has been tried to be adapted multiple times is its own little rabbit hole that yeah yeah so, let's let's just move on do we go to blue velvet now <laughs> sure let's do it sure all right so um does anyone want to do the summary for blue velvet because yeah i'll do blue it velvet, i like it but it's not my favorite so i don't remember a whole lot about it all right so colin mclaughlin finds an ear and then he has sex with a sexually traumatized Isabella Rossellini. And that's all that happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, he also um, tortured by fucking, or... Dennis his, Hopper. His Dennis Hopper, yeah. His name's Dennis Hopper. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Blue Velvet's a, a strange film. Because... I think it took me a while to come around to it. Cause I, I, so I'd watched Twin Peaks before watching blue velvet which i think was a mistake because there's like a lot of similarities between the two and this kind of idea of this beautiful small town um having this like gross like seedy like underbelly um and like i think twin peaks, at the core yeah robin at the core like twin peaks is kind of like all about that and i think like firewalk for me takes that like even further but um blue velvet you know i think really started this um and, and it it had like this sense of like americana as well that definitely like is persistent through all of lynch's work and the beauty on the one side of americana but also like these deep like systemic kind of evils within that within like the facade um, but as like a lot of people have said before, and I think I kind of agree with this at this point, Lynch kind of sees all of it as beautiful, including like the evil parts. Um, I think, I think to me, the parts I like about Blue Velvet the most are like I mentioned before, um, how Kyle McLaughlin is kind of like this, uh, voyeur and kind of like a representation of the audience, um, he kind of like looks into and, and is like fascinated by like the CD underbelly as much as like the audiences. Um, and so it kind of like yeah. forces the audience to like self-reflect on like their own position while watching the film, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, but also like Dennis Hopper's performance, man, 
so good. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, definitely, um, that's definitely my favorite Dennis Hopper performance next to Bowser from the Super Mario Brothers movie. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, oh my god, that's amazing. He just, like, sniffing lime and gas the whole time. Yeah. And, and he hates Heineken, which I agree. I don't like Heineken either. I. It, didn't he i think when he got the script everybody was turning down frank but when when i got to dennis hopper i think he was like this is me i'm frank <laughs> that's not good man. <laughs> <laughs> which is like the best thing i've ever heard yeah oh that's great uh that that is great i mean yeah he's he's certainly the most obviously interesting part of the movie there's a lot to be interested in in blue velvet uh but he's obviously the thing most most people take away um one thing that i took away was this the first time that angelo worked with david lynch it might have been i believe so angelo yeah. badlamenti is um david lynch's longtime composer and i mean every everything he touches really is just great um <laughs> twin twin peaks is arguably his best work i could see an argument for mulholland drive maybe being his best uh score but it's certainly still great here in blue velvet as well yeah um, i think my favorite score by him is firewalk with me oh yeah definitely cool. I, well i just love that in with the twin peaks score because you know that's that's sort of one part twin peaks and you know another part uniquely firewalk with me and, and evil we'll, jazz evil jazz evil we'll, 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 we'll get jazz. there don't, don't worry we'll we'll talk about the pink room um we're not gonna talk yeah. about you though uh who Never talk about Judy. We're not gonna talk about Judy at all. Who the fuck is Judy? Yeah. You um, don't remember Judy. All right. Okay. <laughs> kidding. Um, oh. But back to Blue Velvet. Another yeah. interesting thing about Blue Velvet is this, uh, the whole like sexual aspect of the film. Mm-hmm. Because, so sex in like America is extremely repressed. Like Americans have like really a lot of problems with sex we're we're a very strange society when it comes to that mm-hmm. um and i think that blue velvet definitely like comments on that and, and like showing all, all and having like all this like sexual content and mixed kind of like with like sexual violence as well yeah um i don't i don't really know exactly what it's trying to say i mean certainly like this sexual this like repressed sexuality is like part of like the seedy underbelly of Americana. Like it's been it's been kind of like pushed down and and out of the um, out out of like sight, uh, because it makes like a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of like, Americans uncomfortable. I mean it, it's uh, it it definitely like is related to America as like a as like a Christian Protestant nation. But I. I think if you wanted to, like, put more into the, like, the voyeuristic aspect of it, you know, combining the sort of voyeuristic sexual aspect, you know, sort of the idea that, um, you know, Kyle MacLachlan, this sort of very, like, he seems like this very kind of, I hesitate to say normal, but kind of, you know, average Americana kind of guy, and certainly he would become more of that as uh, Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks. Um, You know, the idea that, you know, he himself on his own sort of in the normal world is not really engaging in that sexual sort of conduct that he has to like sort of see that through this seedy underbelly mm-hmm. um, of yeah. performance and cinema and yeah, then that's he to, like, how he evolved he, into it yeah exactly like that's how he um 
expresses like his um like desires or what's the better way of putting that it's like an outlet for his um like repressed sexuality probably yeah it's almost like he doesn't even understand like his own sexuality until he enters this sort of world of you know uh dennis hopper and isabella rossellini's craziness Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great way of putting it one of the one of the most interesting things i've heard about um as is this memory david lynch has from childhood that kind of reflects in blue velvet of he was just like i guess just like sitting on the sidewalk one day and out of the night comes this completely naked woman just walking down the street with like this dead look in her eyes and i i don't i don't know what the full story is but like I, that's that's just a memory of David Lynch's. That's just that's it's such a weird thing to think about because I could absolutely see where this weird memory kind of reflects in Blue Velvet, non explicitly. Well, what's what's really interesting about that? Uh, he talked about that in the documentary David Lynch: The Art Life, which I would recommend people go check out it's on the criterion collection and i thought like oh it's just on the criterion collection because criterion fans like david lynch but no it's a really good documentary in its own right and he talks about that memory and he and his brother were there and just the visceral nature of like how like he was like his brother started crying and stuff like that and it was just such a a very like yeah you can see it reflecting you know, in his work, and it's like, it just seems like a, a Lynch memory, like a memory that David Lynch would have. But also, in a weird way, they, like, the way he described her, like, coming out of the darkness, um, and, like, how she almost didn't seem to have, like, distinct sort of features, um, and that the only thing that was distinct was, like, her mouth was bloody or something, I think is what he said. And then, sort of, they in the documentary they pay, pair a lot of his memories with sort of his paintings that he works on which are all weird and cool and you should look at but they paired those certain images with like these paintings of like a, a very nondescript like white sort of female figure and it seemed very reminiscent of that figure that appears in twin peaks the return that a lot of people assume is judy which i i tend to assume is judy as well but obviously you know it's Twin Peaks are not really here or there on whether that is true or not. But so I think it's very interesting, you know, I guess seeing how that sort of description has influenced his work. And that definitely seems like an important memory to him that I could see as sort of a foundational one, especially for Blue Velvet. That's yeah, interesting. The thing about the bloody mouth makes me think about um, Ronette Pulaski because she, she has a very bloody mouth as she's oh, just yeah. kind of like walking from the crime scene mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a good one i think that it's interesting how there is this kind of like connection between um like his memories having a huge influence on his work and how like a lot of people describe lynch's films as dreamlike and there's always kind of like this relationship between dream and memory i think um in that the like memories get kind of like mixed together in weird ways since you know you, you don't really have like an accurate recollection of the events it's mostly like emotional and in mm-hmm. dreams too like the number one thing that people remember about their dreams is um like their feelings towards them so like the emotion they're experiencing during them Absolutely. yeah i mean 
as much as David Lynch doesn't like to explain his work, I feel like that documentary was probably one of the best explanations of his work because you can see a lot of the ways in which, you know, his life sort of molded the ideas that came out in his movies. I mean, the whole, his ability to, you know, make an entire world out of a small place like Eraserhead or Twin Peaks or something like that. Like, that's how he described his his childhood was his whole world was like these couple of blocks in this one town or something like that. And he is definitely held on to those sort of emotions. And obviously I don't want to prescribe, you know, what is going on in David Lynch's head, you know, whenever he's making these movies, but you can clearly make some connections that, you know, might contribute to how you read these films. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's undeniable that a person's personal experiences will influence their body of work. Yeah. Um, and talking about the relationship between uh, Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, I know Nick described it as like your free trial of Twin Peaks has ended, um, but there was an interview where the composer that we mentioned earlier, Angelo Badalamenti, um, mentioned that when he, uh, when David Lynch came to him with the idea of Twin Peaks, he said it's going to be a Blue Velvet soap opera. So I think that sort of <laughs> summed it up very well. Oh yeah, for yeah. Sure. And, uh, oh, uh, I think we should also mention that this starts the uh, very long relationship with, with uh, Laura Dern as oh, yeah. uh, Sandy Williams in the film. Oh, true, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, I like her in this because you said the thing about voyeurism and then I kind of realized that Laura Dern's character is the voyeur to Kyle MacLachlan's character going through all of this, but not not as um not not as hands-on as he is hmm. she's I, like looking she's she's watching him go through all this and like seeing all of this kind of peripherally without knowing exactly what's going on so so basically what you're saying is this movie is the experience of having a friend who's a film major and just watching them go down the david lynch rabbit hole <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that was Nick like two years ago when I went down my David Lynch pet rabbit hole. <laughs> and that's yeah. me now watching Nick go down this rabbit hole. I was Nick watching Nick go down that Twin Peaks rabbit hole. We all watched <laughs> someone go down this rabbit hole. Man, David Lynch really predicted David Lynch. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Uh, uh, is it? Yeah. To move on to the the fan favorite of David Lynch. Twi is it Twin Peaks time? Oh well, it hurt. No, no. I say we move on to. Yeah, let's move on to Wild at Heart since we just talked about Laura Dern. <laughs> I would have to go and say. I, I, I guess put my fist down. I, could, I guess another segue I can make is that I, I think, um, uh, Blue Velvet might be david lynch's horniest movie but it's certainly between that and wild at heart so true true that's a good point this is true Nick, you want to do the summary for wild at heart i love to do the summary for wild at heart uh so wild at heart is a david lynch movie starring nicholas cage and really you don't need to know what the plot of the movie is you just need to know that this is a david lynch film Starring Nicolas Cage doing an Elvis impersonation the yep. entire movie. Yep, that's pretty accurate. Um, but and to, to give an... Yeah. 
Um, to give an actual summary, this is about uh, two lovers who um, are on the run from an evil stepmother. Uh, seriously, that's what it is. Um, basically just trying to survive while a bunch of assassins come after them. And it's just absolutely wild. And it's honestly like one of my favorites uh, from David Lynch. It's like in my upper five of my favorite. I know he only has 10 movies, but still. <laughs> you gotta. It's definitely in my top 10. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice I, bro. I, I'm, I'm definitely with Nick on this one. I enjoy it a lot. Like, whether or not it is his best movie, it is based on a book which I don't know how many other... I mean, obviously, Elephant Man was based on real life, but I don't know how many, you know... Straight uh, Story is also based on a book, I think. Oh, okay. So, yeah. There there are a few David Lynch works that Dude are... Dude is based on a book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this this is me. true. Okay, yeah. I'm just, I'm just okay. <laughs> I'm making an ass of myself here. That's okay. It happens. Uh, we all are. But, uh... Yeah, no, I think you could argue that maybe the source material isn't necessarily the best, especially with all the very, 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 very explicit Wizard of Oz illusions. The fact that Cheryl Lee, like, literally plays the good witch in this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, there are also a lot of Twin Peaks cameos here. Um, uh, even the fucking banker guy, it's great. Um <laughs> But yeah, th- I th- I think this movie like might just be one of his most like kind of sickly enjoyable because there's a lot of like over the top violence. There's that one scene that I love um, where they're just like, um, they're like in a sort of like divey place and they're just playing like heavy metal or whatever. Um, <laughs> and they're just like headbanging and uh, Nick Cage gets into like a fight with someone there, but not really a fight. I guess I don't know. It's been a little bit since I watched it, so I don't remember all the details perfectly, but it's it's fun. It's uh it's I love the way the movie starts. Is <laughs> we just have a sailor who's Nicolas Cage. He just fucking murders a dude <laughs> in like very cold blood, and it's just like it's even for David Lynch that was just like oh holy shit, we're just gonna start a movie that way? Alright. <laughs> Because yeah, you, like, like, you get, like, no backstory until, like, ten minutes later. And then you just get Nick Cage just acting like the... One of, one of the most idiosyncratic characters in all of David Lynch's work. Because he feels the oh. need to remind the audience about why he, he wears his, his snakeskin uh, jacket. <laughs> oh, yeah. Constantly. It's a symbol of his individuality. Um, I like the part where Willem Dafoe's head gets blown off. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Uh, this, this might be one of Willem Dafoe's weirdest roles, too, because he plays this very weird sort of Texan sort of pervert assassin. This is the only film to properly utilize Willem Dafoe's smile. Bobby Peru. What a, what a guy. <laughs> what a guy. That sounds like a Twin Peaks character. Oh, I love his gross smile through yeah. the uh, through the pantyhose at the end. Exactly. No, no, no <laughs> film has like... has used Willemfo's smile as 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 well as this one. I don't know, man. Spider Man. Not that's anywhere true. near this, but a try. Uh, and but then... him him smiling in those pantyhose is just such like an instantly iconic image. Yeah. 
Um, I like Laura Dern is good here too. I don't think it's necessarily my favorite performance of her in a Lynch movie, but the fact that she like the fact that she made this movie at all and then you know got into movies like Jurassic Park and stuff like that, you know it's it's kind of astounding the the career that she's had because it, it they they put her through a lot in this movie. Yeah, after having seen like Dern and Lynch work together, I'm like absolutely floored that she was in Jurassic Park at all. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised she's like gotten the things she's gotten considering like where she kind of started small time. But I mean, I guess that's that's where everybody starts. Um, I mean, I, I could see it from Blue Velvet because like she played this kind of innocent character who is almost like kind of kept out of most of the weird David Lynch stuff. Um, but like here, I mean, she's wearing very, you know, clothes that leave very little to the imagination. And there are a lot of scenes that are very sexually explicit with her as sort of the object of, you know, both, you know, sexual intrigue and sexual violence. And, you know, the fact that, you know, someone who has had starring roles in some major movies and has had a very successful career and has had a lot of great performances, you know, I think that's that's kind of astounding that this is still yeah. part of her career. Yeah, this is, it's a very different role. I think this was the only role that made her break her no nudity clause, and that was simply because she trusted David Lynch. Um, Fair enough, but, I guess. But yeah, uh, I think we should talk about Diane Ladd, because Diane Ladd is very good as uh, Lula's mother, um, who who is the one who sends the assassins after both her daughter and possible son-in-law. Um, she's she's just fantastic. She just chews up the scenery, and she's just so good as like this maniacal stepmother type. <laughs> and uh, I think she totally deserved the Oscar nomination she got for this movie. Oh, definitely. And the fact that, like, Harry Dean Stanton just had to kind of be there and react to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, they cut back to him, like, every few minutes, just him going down the road listening to Please Don't Go. <laughs> it's like, it, it, at one point, he's listening to it, and it's daytime, and at another point, it's nighttime, and he's still listening to the song. <laughs> uh, uh, and then there's the there's the point later in the movie... Where um where Sherilyn Fenton shows up, um yeah just for, just for, what for, worth, for what it's worth she gives a good performance there very small role but yeah as girl in accident as it is credited on Wikipedia and she was never in anything else ever again except for the return yep nothing nothing by Lynch certainly this was the only thing they did shame really. Yeah. What was your other performance? Shame. Uh, I believe it was in something called Twin Peaks. Oh, do you want to talk about that now? No. All right. <laughs> no, never, I've saying. never wanted to talk about Twin Peaks in my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's get on to... We talked about this a little bit in the Return podcast, but we're going to revisit it here because you... You have to when talking about David Lynch. Uh, you could say we're going to return to it. Oh my god. All right. Um, anyway. 
Who wants to talk about Twin Peaks first? Uh, well, I'll I can... summarize it. So, okay. uh, Laura Palmer is a dead girl, and Kyle McLaughlin is played by Dale Cooper, goes over to the, <laughs> the town of Twin Peaks to solve her murder. Yeah, except the, the murder doesn't matter because you're there for the characters and what happens until the murder does matter. Yep. Yeah. Until the audience couldn't get over the fact that the murder happened and then David Lynch has to very explicitly explain to you what happened to Laura Palmer. Um, a quick side note. It is kind of like a little bit insane, like the backstory. When, when we finally figure out like everything that happened like the night of Laura Palmer's murder. It is kind of insane. Like all this like weird stuff that happened because like, you know, obviously they came up with it retroactively, like after like putting in all the clues, like the, the writers like piece it together. So like part of me kind of wishes we had like two or three more seasons um, before the murderer was revealed. So like there'd be like a million different like weird ass clues. So mm -hmm. like, Firewalk with me would like only be Lynch like tiptoeing around like these weird ass clues for like two hours <laughs> to try to like explain the murder. Anyway, I don't um, know. I feel like Firewalk with me was a result of him having to give his hand. No, I know. I just thought that would be funny. Well, yeah. I on on revisiting Twin Peaks and I, I've Nick and I have both. I, I, we probably all rewatched the pilot at least a bunch of times. Um, but. Rewatching the pilot, like some part of me is like, I feel like they knew from the beginning who killed her. Um, I think that, I think they did. I, I don't know. There are conflicting reports on whether they, they did. So I think they. I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess we should say right off the bat, uh, spoilers. I mean, we've been spoiling all these David Lynch movies, but um, yeah, if you're thinking about watching Twin Peaks, uh, you definitely don't want this spoiled for you because it does sort of change your initial experience so um yeah go watch twin peaks if you haven't already please um that being said uh leland palmer kills sarah palmer uh leland palmer is played by the terrific gray wise palmer. i mean Lord not sarah palmer laura palmer sorry too many palmers um but he's played by the terrific ray wise and i'm convinced from his performance in episode one that he knew that leland was the killer and that just brings such a terrific nuance to like everything up until he leaves the show and sort of the ambiguity between, you know, how much the spirit who possesses him, Bob, um, you know, plays a role in his behavior, both towards Laura and then also, you know, from to the community, you know, after she is murdered. Because there's so much in there just like, you know, is he being forced to do it? Does he not remember he killed his daughter? You know, is he just fucking with people? Like, it's great. It's a terrific performance, and it's one of my favorite parts of the original series. Yeah. Yeah, and I love how gray it gets in Firewalk with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, like, there was that there was that part um, at the very end when, like, Leland was dying, when he kind of, like, came to the realization that, like, he killed... Uh, his daughter at least like that's what he was portraying and so like from that scene it kind of seemed like there's this like pretty strict divide between um bob who was like possessing leland to kill laura and like the actual leland 
but yeah, like like y'all were saying, I think Firewalk with me like makes this a little bit more ambiguous because like you couldn't really I guess run on cable TV that like a father willingly and knowingly like killed and like raped uh, his own daughter because that's pretty like messed up. Um, and yeah. I think I think I read somewhere that they needed to have this kind of like strict distinction between the two. But, um, yeah, one of the reasons I like Firewalk to me so much is that it, it makes it more ambiguous and more, like, uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Like, the extent of uh, Leland's, like, sexual abuse to, uh, towards Laura. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you can sort of take it in bits and pieces when you're watching the original series after you know what happens, you know? Like, I think you can still sort of view that, you know, you can ha- take that scene where it's at the end where it's putting a more strict divide between um bob and leland and like appreciate that as like a nice send-off for for leland and ray wise and all the terrific work he did on the series um but then you can also take some of the earlier scenes you know with his crazy behavior and you know him acting like a psychopath and you know sort of put that ambiguity back in and it's really just how you choose to read it which is a big theme you know throughout all of twin peaks i think a little bit more so fire walk with me in the return because i think just by the nature of the fact that david lynch did not direct all of twin peaks in the original series and that you know it was running on abc in the 90s you know that it, it couldn't have as much ambiguity but it's certainly still there yeah um it's it's just like i love talking to i've i've introduced a few family members uh to twin peaks and like i just i love talking to them about that killer reveal because it's it's just so out of left field on first watch i feel i mean there there are definitely hints and you'll see them you know if you watch it again but like I think for most people, it just feels very out of left field that it's Leland. Well, I think what's interesting about it is that, like, people, if they're sort of detached from the characters, like, if they just take the first watch and they don't necessarily really empathize with Leland as, you know, a a grieving father, you know, they might say, like, oh, well, it's probably the father. So, like, literally my dad, like, offhand was just like, it's the dad, you know, N- not even really, I don't even think he was really serious about that guess. But, you know, like, oh, yeah, because, you know, always who is the first suspect in a murder? It's, you know, family and immediate relatives and stuff like that, you know. Um, but it's the fact that both the audience and the the police show empathy to Leland as a character and as a father that he's able to, you know, evade arrest for so long. And, like, that that goes back to my whole thing about, like, his, you know, the first scene where you see him react to Sheriff Truman in there coming, you know, um, you know, he says, like, is this about Laura when Sheriff Truman comes up to him? And that could easily be him asking, like, are you here to fucking arrest me for killing my daughter? And they're like, no, 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 he doesn't realize they don't think he did it. So, like, I think he's scared that he, he got caught there. If you want to read it as such, you could read it as just, like, he's scared because he thinks his daughter is dead which is what you're supposed to think right off the bat but i i think um it it, it really is the empathy that we show leland that makes that reveal so surprising yeah absolutely um, um but of course it wouldn't be twin peaks if we just talked about 
only Leland Palmer. Um, I think there are plenty of other lovely characters and plot lines that go on here. Yeah. So, um, um, do we do we want to keep talking about it though? Because I like, I am afraid that we can get lost in all of Twin Peaks. Do we want to maybe stick to Firewalk with me since it is a movie? Um. Uh, let me just. Uh, I think I had a couple more thoughts about Twin Peaks. I suppose just real quickly, we should mention, you know, great performances from Kyle MacLachlan as well as the rest of the cast. If we touch on the return, we can probably talk a little bit more about how terrific Kyle MacLachlan is an, as an actor. Um, uh, and we'll definitely talk about Angelo's score in uh, Fire Walk With Me. Uh, one thing I was really interested in on the rewatch, which I mentioned to Nick earlier today, but it was the fact that, and this sort of ties into some other criticisms I've heard of David Lynch's work, um, that people bring up that I would be interested to talk about. Um, there are not a lot of people of color in David Lynch's work. Um, he does have two notable characters who lead in this movie, uh, in this series, who one is Josie Packard, um, who is one from Hong Kong and the other is Hawk, who's excellent. And he is a, a native American man. Um, but this is also a series that primarily centers on, um, you know, white, uh, police officers slash FBI agents and a character in a case that primarily surrounds white suspects. And I was watching this with my roommate and a lot of time they were talking about sort of a modern police view on it. So I guess maybe now might be the time where we can address Lynch and uh, people of color, I guess, because people seem to keep on bringing it up. I'm not entire. I wouldn't say I'm not sure why, but I, I think it's worth discussing either way. I think it probably comes from the fact that, like, he probably grew up in a pretty homogenous neighborhood. Like, you know, he grew up in, like, the small town. It's probably unlikely that um, many of his neighbors, like, weren't white. Um, although, like, obviously, like, when he moved um, to Hollywood. Yeah, certainly. Um, um, well, one thing he mentioned in the documentary, actually very specifically, was he's, like, he, he mentioned specifically that his mother was against, like, any kind of racism and he specifically pointed out in at this one case um, in Philadelphia where his neighbor was just really racist. And I, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that because, well, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I think Lynch is racist in any way. I do think, you know, you could talk about maybe he, he doesn't have a lot of representation and stuff like that, but I don't think that necessarily makes him problematic or whatever. Um, but I think it's interesting that he brought that up because that you know so seems like something that's usually out of his wheelhouse, kind of. Yeah, I think if 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 he's problematic about anything, I think it's about his um, depiction of like women and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, it seemed uh, like viewing these films from like a modern eye, some of his characters can be seen as kind of. Um, like definitely, his female characters can be seen as kind of stereotypical, um, except for like the the lead performances, because I feel yeah. like a lot of times like the leads are very very nuanced. Um, but I'm thinking yeah. maybe like um, Laura Dern's characters in like uh, this in uh, Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet mm -hmm. aren't like particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, or. Yeah, I guess like when it gets to oh oh his like obsession with like. Um, the male body, I think the the female body, I think, can be pretty problematic. I mean, like he's he's gone on record saying, 
I love naked women, which, you know. Is and pretty, factories. And factories, which is pretty based, but at the same time, you know, kind of problematic. But um, for, like, the race thing, I don't know. I think I think it's mainly just because of, like, the environment that he grew up in. Um, and, like, you're, 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 you're told to, like, what, write what you know, like, make art about what you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't necessarily think that, like, Lynch has, like, a very interesting take on, like, systemic racism that would compel him to, like, make a work of butter about that. Yeah, no, definitely. I just, I I thought it was, it, it was weird that I just keep seeing it getting mentioned, like, in the, the discussion we had uh, at, on Mulholland Drive uh, at my school, like, people talked about how, you know, like, there weren't any people of color, and I'm like, yeah, but, like I said, it's, yeah, I agree. It's not really in Lynch's wheelhouse to talk about that you know and that yeah. doesn't invalidate his work as his work but yeah, i didn't he's, think he's like this like old ass like white man yeah he doesn't really know anything about this kind of stuff although that yeah that being said he could definitely use more representation in his work yeah um yeah. and like i said i i do think having josie and hawk on like a, a primetime abc show is is cool i but guess but i feel like i feel like... like hawk's character was like a huge stereotype though kind of it, it felt very awkward but even like in the return to uh to like watch hawk's character like remember the, the, there's like kind of like parts that like like twinge on like racism like with the log that he says hawk the 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 hint has something to do with your heritage and he's like my heritage or like whenever like hawk is like constantly said to be like a good tracker you know for like the police force it's it's kind of like Really, really yeah. David Lynch. <laughs> it's a little on the edge, like, because, yeah, they're definitely, like, the thing what the log lady was saying is, you know, like, I could maybe take that as, like, a joke or something, but, yeah, definitely the stuff about him being, like, a good tracker. And there's stuff in the original series, too, where they, you know, there was, like, a line that I think um, uh, Lucy's uh, sister, by the way, we haven't talked about Lucy at all, so I'll just say she's the best character <laughs> in the show right now, um, and then move on and say nothing else about her. Um, but there's one point where her sister is like, oh, you must be so mad at white people or something like that. And he's like, oh, so my best friends are white people. And I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit awkward. To... so weird. I don't know. <laughs> I can never quite put my thumb on how I feel about, like, Hawk in terms of representation, but he, he's, a, he's a cool guy. So, you know, he's... Uh, he's not, a, cool. not a great actor though i'll be honest yeah <laughs> he, he does his job the, um, the now that you mentioned lucy um i forget the actress's name but um when i was at comic-con a couple of years back i went to like the the twin peaks the return panel um mm-hmm. it was like it was like um like an anniversary panel so it wasn't like for the the release of the show but uh the, the actress who played lucy was there and the the one thing i remember the most is that the actress sounds exactly the same as the oh, character yeah. does. I didn't expect any different. I I, I felt that she was doing a voice because like that voice is so iconic. No, um, it's like it's like the same thing with um the the girl from um Gravity Falls, which is probably inspired a lot by Twin Peaks. But the Mabel, I think, yeah. is the name. Like she just sounds like yeah. that in real life. Uh, well, she I'm uses that voice in like everything she voice acts. Yeah, because that's just how she sounds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess one thing I wanted to say on the, the representation thing before we go into Firewalk With Me, the best David Lynch movie, um, Lost Highway, uh, is That's that I do, think it, I do think it is interesting 
sort of talking about because I, I never thought the original series of Twin Peaks was really shy about sort of throwing in some mocking of the police force. Um, you know, certainly the police are all portrayed as good characters and positive characters, but I think at, at times, you know, it, it, they are sort of caricatures. The fact that they're, you know, chowing down on donuts all the time, the fact that Cooper, he has this weird, like, Tibetan method that he uses instead of, like, actual investigation to, like, try and narrow down some suspects. You know, I, I think David Lynch would, you know, he occasionally, like, poke fun at the police. So I think if you wanted to view it as, like, hey, why aren't these police, like, arresting these characters who are clearly, like, doing stuff that is crazy and against the law? It's like, well, they're, you know, white police officers who are showing way too much empathy and being way too lenient with white suspects. Um, and, you know, while I'm not necessarily suggesting that, like, Cooper or Sheriff Truman are, are racist, and you know, in the world outside of Twin Peaks, um, you know, if you wanted to sort of take a modern reading on Twin Peaks, that is perhaps one way to view it as sort of a, a little bit mocking the police. I don't know if I really agree. I think I actually kind of view the show as pretty, um, like, propagandistic, honestly, because yeah, it, because it portrays, like, the, the, the police in such, like, a positive light. But I'm not going to, like, dock the show down for that because, you know, it was the 90s. And so, like, the, um, the... Not that the police have only been bad recently, but the um this kind of like discuss yeah this like vast like cultural change among like moderates and like the white liberal um towards the police uh has like happened more recently. So I don't necessarily think it's fair to like look back on like older media um and like say like this is like propagandistic. This isn't even though in my opinion, yeah, Twin Peaks doesn't really too much about oh yeah no like problematic police officers in my opinion yeah no i don't i don't think it at all you know addresses that i think you can take some bits and pieces and be like this kind of moxicity but yeah this definitely does not in any way address the actual systemic issues in our police system i just think you could perhaps look at this and sort of you, you could certainly discuss it in this light for better or for worse but yeah i agree i don't think you should dock it this series at all for its representation of police especially since you know whether they're you know officers of the law or not these characters are just great True. yeah strongly written characters and i mean there are parts of the return that like expose a corrupt police force that kind of was built in, within twin peaks but uh more about that in our twin peaks the return podcast Yeah. All right. Fire walk with me time. Hell yeah. Let's do Lost Highway first. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, <laughs> hey, if you want to. I'm kidding. Go ahead. You said no structure to this. Um, all right. Yeah. We'll just do Fire Walk with Me. So, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me is the prequel to Twin Peaks that you shouldn't watch first because it's also kind of a sequel <laughs> in a weird way. Um, so Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is the story of the last seven days of Laura Palmer's life, plus a little bit at the beginning about the murder of Teresa Banks, which was the first killing that Leland did. Um, and Fire Walk With Me just is such an insane film because it just, it 
dives right into its subject matter. It doesn't stray away from the fact that they've set up this story about this incestuous murder. It doesn't stray away from any little detail about, you know, what has happened here. It is a deep dive into what was wrong in Laura Palmer's life. And it's just so unflinching and unnerving. And I just, I love it so much. It's, yeah, it really is just great in all aspects. And the, the fact that it fits so well into everything they had established before, like, you know, the fact that, you know, all of these characters make these appearances, except for the fact that Donna is played by a different actor. Um, but, like, how they managed to, like, make it all work with the, the clues and the timeline that had been set up beforehand and still keep it interesting, it's just fantastic. And it, it should, I guess, be mentioned that, you know, it is almost kind of like three different movies in one. Because you start out with this sort of like dark parody of Twin Peaks that is the investigation of Teresa Banks's original murder, where you sort of have, you know, the FBI agents and, and Cooper and Gordon Cole are there. Um, but, you know, it, it focuses on, you know, sort of a characters who end up being kind of like a dark parody of like cooper and truman and all the twin peaks characters you know and love sort of mocking the tv series i suppose and then you get sort of the the weird sort of david lynch mythos kind of thing going on with twin peaks in the middle that trend ends up transitioning into what is, takes up the most of firewalk with me but you get to see like the the convenience store all the people who are talking and reversed backwards speech you know all that kind of stuff that you know probably got people hooked on twin peaks by episode three david bowie's philip jeffries yeah david fucking bowie appears so you know this movie's awesome he's in it for like 15 seconds yeah i i think my parents were expecting a much bigger role out of david bowie when i showed him that movie and they were like david bowie's in this <laughs> i mean if, if you got david bowie i think anyone would expect a bigger role from him huh I mean, they have those deleted scenes, um, but yeah, I actually kind of don't mind the fact that he's such a small role. I almost feel like that adds to the charm. No, it's um, fine. It just it's just funny that he is. Yeah, it almost makes it feel like it. I mean, if you're maybe you shouldn't bring too much exterior stuff into Twin Peaks because it's very much kind of in and of itself. But like, I I could almost imagine that like were it not for the deleted scenes that exist like they just kind of like got david bowie to show up for 15 seconds like after a show and then he just had to like move on to the next one he just came in like two seconds bye hmm. yeah yeah i think the reason i like firework for me so much is um uh well certainly shirley's performance um it really disappoints me that she wasn't really in much after this because like i think this is like definitely one of the best performances i've seen like in in film like ever this uh it's i, I kind of interpret it to be the like the happy ending of twin peaks um in a sense that by the end of the film i think that uh laura does like overcome all of her like trauma and all of, and you know all of like the hardships and, like the terrible stuff that has like happened to her over um you know all, all the years because there was really like no hope for her and of uh, for uh, for her to like escape or to ever you know get rid of this emotional trauma really because um 
like her her father is like her main abuser and like you know getting out of that like getting out of that is kind of like is really difficult if not impossible and and she kind of views herself to be a lost cause too you can see like in her and how she interacts with donna in the film she sees that like donna kind of like takes on like her tendencies and she considers herself to be like already gone but she doesn't want to like drag other people with her because she still has like that kind-hearted soul but um by the very end she kind of does the one thing that like she had the power to do and so like she does overcome all this evil by not letting um bob transfer like bodies from leland who's like getting older and eventually he's gonna get out of leland's body to hers because she doesn't want to like perpetuate all of that um evil that bob represents um so on on like the um uh like the level like the meta level like that means that she doesn't want all of this trauma which comes from like her father to be passed on to her you know Mm -hmm. um and, and so i found that really interesting and like that's why i find the film so powerful because it's a really i think like one of the most interesting and like nuanced stories about um uh like childhood trauma and sexual assault and like how you like deal with all of this like you know emotional baggage i mean there's certain certainly something to be said you know lynch movies can be really esoteric as you mentioned earlier and as we will probably talk about if we get around to inland empire um but i think there's something to be said for like you know when lynch has a strong you know central topic and doesn't really beat around the bush and just kind of goes for it because that's arguably kind of Eraserhead. Eraserhead is esoteric in its own like certain ways, but you know the whole plot line of just being anxious about becoming a parent is you know pretty strong and pretty you know not 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 too hard to pick up on. And this just being kind of like a straightforward story about a girl who has you know suffered abuse and sexual trauma at the hands of her own father. You know that's that's a very raw story in and of itself. But then the fact that you know David Lynch is really just presenting in this horrifyingly beautiful stylized way um just you know makes it all the more powerful and i I do agree that it has that certain happy ending to it but i also think like i i I like the sort of nuance in you know laura's smile at the end where it's like you know she's crying at the same time and it's like is she happy or is she sad you know she's uh you know she's overcome this you know abuse and trauma but now she's stuck in this you know this red room in this cosmic battle yeah um like she's just kind of stuck there for who knows how long and i think that's uh so let me clarify what i mean by when i said like the happy ending for like twin peaks so it's definitely you're right it's a total it's a nuanced ending it's not it's definitely not only happy but this this is like the best scenario for like twin peaks to end in because of like this there needs to be this existence of like the good and evil oh yeah right but here is like an example of i'd say like the good conquering the evil or at least like pushing back the evil to like a later date and that's kind of like the best you can do in this in like the world of twin peaks right well yeah and Um, also a lot of people have argued that you know if you know yeah i mean bob clearly had a terrible effect with leland but you know arguably with how connected laura was to the rest of the town like had bob possessed her she would have been able to cause like so much more pain and suffering oh yeah for sure yeah uh 
uh, should we? I I wanna I wanna bring up the score. I don't know when when a good time to bring up the score is. It's good. Now's as good a time as ever. Um, yeah, dude. The oh my god, evil jazz. Evil jazz. Oh, it's so evil. The jazz. <laughs> I I literally oh, man. I I woke up one morning, not even like close to when I watched Firewalk with me. And I just had the, it was like early in the morning. I didn't even mean to wake up that early. I just woke up and I had the theme like playing in my head. And I'm just like, man, I'm sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, it's definitely like my dude, favorite Lynch The score. Pink Room. Yeah. The mm. Pink Room. Oh, my God, dude. That's music perfected. Yeah. I love, I love pink... in that scene how like um, the music just overwhelms everything. Like you can't even like hear the characters speak. So they have to like add subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and just just how fucking badass that that whole song sounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because that really just sort of it 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 puts you right there with where Laura, you know, wants to be and how terrifying that is, but also how numbing the sensation she needs is mm-hmm. to drown out the you know the the pain and the sorrow that she's holding in her. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and you know. And just how stressful that then makes the scene when she sees Donna, you know, sort of, you know, not, I, I don't necessarily like putting it as like singing to her level, but that's certainly how she sees it is that, you know, she's sort of emulating herself and becoming that lost cause that she sees herself as. Mm-hmm. And so when she sees that and just, the, you know, it goes to defend Donna, it's just, you know, such a stressful scene with that music still playing in the background. Yeah. And I love, um, I love, I love like how the music makes me feel. Well, I guess I hate it because it's super depressing. Yeah. But, um, it's like, it's like, it's like weird and like experimental at points. I'm thinking like the black dog rings at night or like sycamore trees. It's like this, like, yeah, yeah, there's like, like this really like weird foreboding sense of like evil in in those lyrics. Um, (laughs) I really like the, um. Even even the main theme. Yeah, the, the main theme. The main theme actually might be my, my, my might be my favorite, because it's it's kind of because like, it, it's it's like this like somber and like Red said like a numbing kind of tone with like this kind of like evil like lurking underneath it. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like the 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 main theme of Twin Peaks, except it it takes this very dark foreboding tone, which is you know absolutely perfect for what the movie is. Well, and there's something to be said, too, for, like, how well, like, the score just keeps the pace moving and how well it can, you know, um, accentuate moments. Because it still obviously takes songs from the, you know, actual soundtrack of the show. You know, obviously it has Laura Palmer's theme in there. And then, you know, there's the point after, you know, the FBI investigation sort of ends and then it just hard cuts to uh, the Twin Peaks sign from the intro to the show and it does the intro theme and you know that's as as somber and weird and fucked up as this movie is that's a pretty hype moment like when like you've gone through like this whole you know half hour 45 minute whatever it was of like you know dark twin peaks parody and like weird you know black lodge shit to then finally make it to the town of twin peaks where it's like it's so weird to feel excited about you you know you know what kind of shit is waiting for you in laura palmer's life but it's just like this is twin peaks and you know you gotta love it for what it is Mm -hmm. yeah 
Um, yeah. Also, yeah. probably, probably my favorite um, performance of David Lynch in one of his own movies or content. Oregon. She's my mother's sister's girl. Dude, you gotta show your parents Twin Peaks just so you can shout Gordon lines at each other. <laughs> because that's that's what me and my parents have been doing since I showed them this this movie. Just uh, shouting Oregon, it's fantastic. Yeah, the the my my second favorite David Lynch performance in one of his own content is um is definitely the the background voice he plays in Inland Empire talking about lights or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. Yeah, he's not that. even credited. He's just like he, I. I think he's just shouting at like when he's pretending to be an intern or something. And it's just you're like, oh yeah, that's David Lynch right there. Yeah. <laughs> and then like the character who is is nothing. He doesn't even appear, but he has his like own entry on like the David Lynch fan wiki or whatever. And it's like ah, uh, it's great. Welcome, welcome to the David Lynch fan base, everyone. <laughs> Um, David Lynch should just play all the characters in all of his films. He really should. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about with Firewalk with Me, or um, just that you know, I think we we now look at Firewalk with Me very differently because of the return and how much actually paid off from Firewalk with Me, and I I, I just think there's there was so much in here that was like. He just sort of put it in here to, for the sake of like, all, for the sake of abstraction, really. But at the end of the day, like so much of this made so much sense with the context of the return, and I think that that just deserves a lot of credit. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah, it is like retrospective writing, mm -hmm. but I yeah, it does it does fit pretty well. And I, I like how it sort of recontextualizes characters from the original series as well. I mean, you know, obviously we knew some things about it, but I think, like, you know, you, you see, you get it to a much better extent. Like, you see, you know, how much damage Laura did to Bobby as a person. And obviously she was doing it to survive, you know, so you can't exactly blame Laura for that. But still, like, how she affected Bobby and then, like, how James is kind of a psychopath um <laughs> what do you mean by that like he seemed I, I think some scenes from you never know what's going on in that five head of his yeah i think some scenes from the original series like paint their relationship as like more sort of black and white like oh yeah she definitely loved him but like he almost like in fire walk with me he seems to have like an unhealthy obsession with laura which certainly would you know work with his sort of unhealthy obsession with laura even after her death with you know his sort of fantasizing about maddie and whatnot um yeah. but like she is like very you know she hardly seems to love him at all in this movie even though she literally shouts like i love you james like it seems like a very conflicted you know relationship but he still seems to kind uh, of like, okay to like so I, I don't i don't really agree so i think that um the reason why it seems conflicted is because i think laura does legitimately love him because otherwise like i don't see why she would keep him around like, um, with Bobby, she keeps him around. Like, she, I don't think she loves Bobby. But she keeps him around because, like, he's, like, the cocaine dealer, right? And so, like, she does have, like, kind of, like, these... Um, oh, and, like, um, the weird guy with the plants. I forget his name. Like, Harry or whatever. Harold. 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 Um, 
she like keeps him around because of um like that's like where her like secret diaries and this kind of thing so like she can definitely have like relationships with people but also like use it for practical reasons but for james there isn't really a practical reason i don't think to keep him around i think it is mainly just love but the reason why it seems awkward is because she knows that like her days are limited and they can never like be together forever because like you know she kind of like has this kind of sense that she's gonna die right um mm. but but despite this like she loves james and she kind of wants to maybe like soften the blow um in, in a certain sense um which is why like she kind of like keeps her uh, she keeps herself at, like at a, at a distance from him or else like maybe she feel fears that like he'll never be able to like get over her when she inevitably dies Perhaps. Maybe I just got it from something from uh, the um, the performance for James. Because, uh, like, just especially some of the last scenes where he's just kind of staring at her. Yeah. You know, it just feels like he has this very... I mean, he certainly does have oh. an unhealthy obsession. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Although, I, I do think that, um, like, she loves him. I, don't, I, I really don't see, like, why she would keep him around otherwise. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, uh, someone someone brought up something interesting. Is that does does James really love her back? Because what the fuck is driving away from that girl who who just shouted she loves you? Uh, just driving away from her after she's like had a breakdown. <laughs> someone someone brought that up. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it. Well, because like... uh, like she he wants to uh. Maybe, like, I don't know, honor, like, her space. Because, like, she, she's, like, trying to, like, get away from him in that scene. And um, Yeah, I think I think she she has gotten across that whatever is happening to her cannot be stopped by him. Yeah, in the same way that she kind of, like, keeps Donna at a distance, you know? Like, um... Yeah. Donna is, like, super surprised when she learns, like, all this stuff about Laura, like, after she dies, right? Yeah. Because, like, Donna was kind of this safe person like place for for laura to like kind of like spill her emotions um and she didn't like want you know donna to be like be involved with all this so it, it, it there seems to be like this kind of trend where the people that she holds like the most dearly she's actually like really closed off to as to like not hurt them which i think yeah. makes a lot of sense one of the things yeah. i really like sort of retroactively looking at Firewalk with me in the original series was you know in the original series maddie talks a lot about how you know she feels like she's laura she feels like she understands laura like she knows what it's like to be laura and i think at least in the context of the tv show at the time like that was probably more true but i i like the theme you know throughout the original series you know the fact that they keep learning more about laura but also in Firewalk with me you know clearly she holds people at a distance the idea that you can't really understand the kind of pain that you know laura went through that her experience is just so uniquely terrible you know that you yeah know, these people who are looking you know in on her life from the outside and trying to understand her and thinking that they do they just really don't and that's you know okay because you know arguably you can never really understand someone that well but this is just sort of hammering home that you know not only can people live double lives but like even if you try to understand them like there are just some things that you really can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Bobby Bobby puts it best where when you know he's talking at the funeral and he's just like, we all kind of knew that there was something wrong. We didn't know exactly what, but there was something wrong and no one helped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. That's, it's just like a very striking moment now, um, you know, having seen everything. I mean, David Lynch certainly took, when he, you know, when he made this movie, he certainly took to heart a lot of the stuff that he clearly really loved about the series. And, you know, he didn't just, he wasn't just like, yeah, sure, I'll make a Twin Peaks movie. Like, he was very dedicated to seeing this idea through in a way that worked with, you know, what he had established so far. Yeah. I could, I don't know, I could talk about this movie forever. There's so much about it that just, like, fascinates me. Yeah. But we got three more movies to get to. Yeah, I just keep wanting to go back and rewatch it, but I don't want to make myself sick of it either. But I don't know if I could get sick of it because it's just great. Yeah, uh, I think it's one of the favorite movies by him. It's up there. Firewalk with me. Watching Firewalk with me was basically just like a second hobby of mine over the break. <laughs> I was just like I couldn't stop watching this movie. Yeah. So is it time to talk about Duran's favorite? Yes. The uh, Duran would like to. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Take it away, Duran. Lost Highway. I love this movie because every single time I watch it, I notice like different things that really like question um, my own interpretation about the movie. Like I was pretty dead set on saying that like this film was about how. Um, the main character like couldn't cope with the fact that he um killed his wife so that he kind of he like kind of like constructs like this reality um that uh in, in which like he doesn't to like uh to like cope with this idea but um upon rewatching that like i still kind of like buy into this theory i did also see like a lot of like strong themes surrounding like toxic masculinity as well um yeah, and, and definitely, like, the idea of, like, denying your own reality there. Um, oh, man, there's so much about this movie I like. Uh, so I love the the use of music here. Like, this really weird mixtape featuring, like, uh, Nine Inch Nails and, like, Marlon Manson and, like, Ramis Nine and, like, David Bowie. Um, it, it, it's, like, it does kind of date the film because it's it's, like, such, like, 90s music. But I think, it, I don't know, I think it works really well for this, like, strange and, like, edgy film. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think I, you still have Angela yeah, it, music for some of the scenes, right? He did the original score, yeah. I meant, like, the, the licensed music. Obviously, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I really like, uh, this This is, like, I think my, well, I mean, it's probably my favorite Lynch film. But it's, also, it's also, like, my favorite, like, Lynch mystery. Um, because... You, you have, like, this... You, at the beginning, the mystery seems, like, kind of a typical one in the sense that, you know, you have, like, this killer who says, like... Or this, like, weirdo who sends, like, videotapes. And then you have, like, this, like, weird mystery man and, like, the, the white makeup. And you're thinking that it's kind of, like, going to set itself up to be, like, a typical kind of, like, you know, weird whodunit or something. But... Is it David Lynch's cash? Yes, cachet. David Lynch's cachet. Um, but by the end, like, mm -hmm. the film kind of... Well, there is, like, this really awkward, like, switch in the middle of the film where, like, it goes from um, the main character being played by Bill Pullman to being played by, like, some other guy, some, like, younger guy. And, like, the main, like, female lead who's played by Patricia Arquette 
goes from being like redheaded to like blonde and it's it's super like um it's it's like this uh dual narrative kind of thing which um he also did in Mulholland Drive I think this is the first like um mirrored kind of narrative that he does right because I, I think like he does this in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire right yeah he kind of yeah. does it. I mean if you can if you can tell me what happened in Inland Empire then sure <laughs> you know maybe <laughs> oh I've yeah dude I have no idea what happens in Inland Empire but like um there is this kind of mirrored there, there's like these mirrored narratives where like you have the same actor playing like multiple roles but they're all kind of like the same person but they're all yeah. kind of not it's like it's weird to like explain well yeah because in inland empire you kind of had you have laura dern potentially playing multiple roles not only just as her job as an actor but you know there are possibly many characters in there but then there's also some sort of parallel narrative going on in poland as well so yeah i don't know what the hell was going on there um, but with, uh... I've, I've heard an interesting explanation, but I'll save that for <laughs> Inland Empire. Yeah. yeah, so with Lost Highway, um, there is also, like, this sense that the main character really wants to possess, like, Patricia Arquette's character. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't really get that in the first narrative with Bill Pullman, because, like, you don't really get much of Patricia Arquette's character besides, like, they're married, and then she's dead. But then, um when you see like the other like the the other like narrative part um there's this part near the end of the film where they're having like sex on the sand outside of like this this cabin mm -hmm. and i think she says like you want me you want me like you'll never have me or something like that yeah um and that 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 line kind of like recontextualized my viewing um uh, my, my 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 subsequent viewing um because I, I realize like the whole the whole movie is obviously about like the murder of like this woman right but um he has like this intense jealousy towards her which becomes more clear in the alternate narrative you don't see it as much as in the first one um but like in this alternate narrative like she's like obsessed with like her sexual like history specifically like in um the porno industry right Mm -hmm. um and this this is like part of this like toxic male desire to um completely like control a woman and um you know uh her sexuality as well and but by the end of the alternate narrative like she like gets away from him like she like, disappears right kind of you know showing that like it's impossible for like a man to do this um so i i suspect that like this might have been why Bill Pullman, like, killed his wife, you know, there could have been some kind of, um, this, like, hidden desire, like, deep within him to, like, this, this like, deep, like, jealousy, this, like, deep, like, male jealousy, although, you know, uh, talking about the, uh, the actual, like, events, like, the plot, I guess doesn't really interest me so much, and, like, you know, it's kind of, like, useless to a certain degree, but, um, yeah, I definitely, like, upon rewatching, I definitely got this, like, uh, commentary on toxic masculinity. So, uh, Duran, do you know where to find the Lost Highway? And how did it get lost in the first place? Uh, as David Lynch. I think it's in L.A. If, uh, I, if I had to guess, I think, I believe it might be in L.A. Uh, yeah, it's probably, like, outside L.A. or something. But that was just, yeah, a little joke there. Uh, I think <laughs> as, a, as a quick note, I think this is the last time... 
Jack Nance makes an appearance in a David Lynch movie. I think he died the same year this, came, this film came out. Wow. Yeah. Well, um... Died in yeah, a bar fight. Uh, as another side note, uh, I, I'm reading right now that this was adapted into an opera, and I need to see this opera immediately. That is sick. Like Rammstein. Oh my Fucking like goodness. David Bowie on the opera. That'd be sick. That's, That's amazing. That is terrific. Um, but yeah, Jack Nance is probably like my favorite David Lynch actor just because he is the best part of any David Lynch content he's in. You know, whether it's just like a little background role like in this one in Lost Highway where he just kind of shows up as like one of the auto shop workers and is like, I like this jazz song and then just kind of leaves or whether he's yeah. <laughs> a star. He's like, red. he's the weird old man in um, uh, Wild at Heart that just like comes up to the table. Yep. Uh, he. I mean, he's, he's Pete in Twin Peaks, you know, he, he has the legendary two before scene from the deleted scenes. It's just which no one even got to see until twenty fourteen. That is that is that is a crime. That is a crime. That I know until after he died. Uh I mean, yeah, no, it's Jack Nance is just terrific, and I, I just love seeing him in any David Lynch movies. And I'm sure David Lynch loved seeing him in any of his movies because he's clearly just very fond of jack Nance, as you probably should be at least from the performances david lynch gave i don't really know about jack Nance as a person but... well he died in a bar fight oh really so <laughs> <laughs> oh man i uh it, it it made me sad uh that he wasn't really in the return but at the same time his presence is felt and that was very nice Oh yeah, right. Uh well, I mean, you know, he's, he's well, especially especially on episode seventeen, where um, we kind of get that. Well, her body isn't there, so. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, you still have a clip of him. I was surprised that he was. Um, I think he shows up in the cast list for Return from you know appearing in that. Maybe it's you have to have a spoken line or something, but you know, um, Josie does not appear in the cast list you know even though they have the the first shot of her from the original series and yeah the return which i thought was interesting but we're not talking about the return we're talking about inland empire i mean I I inland empire. Lost lost highway. <laughs> what do you guys mean um, the lost highway was so lost it was in my memories of inland empire uh yeah i I, honestly, I'd need to see this one more. You, I, I just let you talk because I don't know if I have a complete grasp of this film. Me I think, well, I think um, that's the, one of the best parts of the film because, um, like I said, like whenever I watch it, I definitely like notice new things. I get like a new interpretation, or like I get something to work upon my previous ones. Yeah, I. It's like uh, it's like a racer head in that regard for me. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, I I love uh, Robert Blake as the mystery man. I, I I love I love the fact that he has no eyebrows. That's just very unsettling and creepy to me. <laughs> um, and and that oh that big stupid smile that he just has on his face. He would make a great Joker. <laughs> Stop. Uh, Stop that that I just, you know, I had I had to say it after the smile thing. Um, 
but um it's just so creepy and it's just so like there's no reason it it should be creepy other than the way that it looks and the way he says it is it, it he's just a man who's just like i am at your house <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just like i don't know it's it's great i love i love him um i need to see this movie again uh, uh i think is really the bottom line about <laughs> my takeaways is just like i I didn't even realize that that was supposed to be the same guy on my first watch because I was just very lost as to what this was. Oh, you I, meant I, like I, Bill Pullman and the other guy? Yeah. Oh. I definitely realized that they were supposed to have some sort of connection, but I just wasn't sure like if like it was just some sort of like representation of him as this young kid or like if there was actually some some weird you know twin peaks shit where you know this kid teleported in and was swapped out with this other guy somehow so I, um, um without like getting i guess into like the detail of like how this happens and the logistics of the narrative but um i kind of viewed it to be uh like it, it had like it was like two parallel narratives so <laughs> we had maybe like the um uh the reality of bill pullman's character and then we had uh his like idealized version of events you know there's this there's this line in the film where he says um there's something about like the vhs tapes and like recording and then he says to like the cops um i like to remember things my own way and so that kind of like tipped me off that like maybe the other the parallel narrative is an idealized version of events but even like in his idealization he's unable to like get control of like Patricia Arquette's character and she remains kind of like this elusive like ethereal like person um throughout that whole uh parallel narrative hmm. yeah I mean I've I've heard explanations of the film but I definitely want to um go back and kind of see if I can make something of it myself dude I always forget that Richard Pryor is in this movie for like three seconds yeah <laughs> that was funny he's like um one of the uh mechanics at uh the young guy's place mm-hmm. yeah oh. and uh anybody anybody else in this uh no those i think we covered all the like main people that are in this but um oh marilyn manson <laughs> marilyn manson's in that porn for like two oh, seconds yeah. he's like oh, yeah in Patricia cut. <laughs> gary Busey my guy um yeah uh, yeah this this david lynch film is pretty horny too i don't i'm not sure if i would say it's more horny than blue velvet or mm-hmm. uh violet heart but yeah certainly very horny at points yeah like i think the the sexual parts of it didn't really click on the first watch through that i had but definitely on subsequent ones i think it kind of like reinforced this um idea of wanting to like control um like the woman a woman's like sexuality the, the male desire to control a woman's sexuality mm-hmm. yeah this is really interesting it says it was partially inspired by the oj simpson murders really huh I, I yeah that's that's really interesting i mean there, there's in, there's definitely direct inspirations for like a lot of david lynch's stuff like i read that uh or i heard that somewhere that you know there was a, a murder case, you know, with some similarities to Laura Palmer's in nearby, you know, Mark Frost's 
Mark Frost's childhood home, which if you don't know, Mark Frost is the one who wrote Twin Peaks with David Lynch. I think yeah. that, um, so the thing that first, that like eventually developed into being Twin Peaks was a like fictionalized miniseries about um, uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, and like her death. Um, and yeah, they, they were going to adapt some book, I think. Yeah. And so the connection between that and Twin Peaks is that, um, I think Lynch and Frost were really interested in how like, you know, this, this one person had such an impact on like all these other people. So like, I guess like Marilyn Monroe's death would have been like a jumping off point to like explore, um, how like everyone else is expected by this in the same way that like Laura Palmer's death is supposed to do that. Yeah. While, like, you know, not really um, coming to conclusions as to, like, who killed Laura Palmer are necessarily, like, what led to Marilyn Monroe's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they even explicitly reference her in one episode of Twin Peaks where Cooper's talking to Diane and he's like, what happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys and who pulled the trigger <laughs> on JFK? I don't remember so. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I heard about how they were working on a series before and they, they mentioned that clip in the same series and then I like just rewatched the original series with my roommate. So, um, yeah, I, I remember it. It's definitely, it, it's, it's like early on, they get it out of the way in like one of the first three episodes. So, yeah. All right. Well, we have uh, two left, uh, between Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive, which would you guys rather talk about first? Well, I think it'll just go in chronological order. Yeah, so... Um, Ending with the L.A. trilogy. I like it. Uh, well, we can probably mention a, a couple things about Twin Peaks and the return to before we finish. But, um, yeah, so uh, Mulholland Drive, as we've kind of already summarized, is the story of Naomi Watts' character uh, as she arrives in L.A., an aspiring actress, and she gets involved with the mystery surrounding uh amnesiac i forget her name uh Uh, rita uh rita right played by laura herring um and or camilla uh yeah so there's a and we'll talk about that but there's a lot of sort of this this is probably other than Lost Highway, David Lynch's biggest, like, sort of mirror narrative in that you have actors playing multiple characters who are perhaps the same people or, you know, the same person, but just in a dream or not in a dream, you know, whatever you want to make of it. Um, but so the, the the loose plot is that they're trying to solve the mystery of what happened to Rita and how she lost her memory um, in this incident that happened on Mulholland Drive. Um, and at the same time, you have a another narrative going on with film director uh, Adam Kesher, uh, played by Justin Theroux, um, as he's trying to make a film. But he has um, he's being he has pressure put on him from like Hollywood higher ups slash gangsters, and he's getting cucked by Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes, that's true as well. Um, but so he's having pressure put on him to cast a certain actress in his film, leading to the, you know, the iconic slash enigmatic line, this is the girl that is repeated throughout the movie. Um, it's a very sort of interesting take on, you know, uh, some 
you know, a lot of different issues in Hollywood, you know, gender politics, you know, how we, you know, uh, how female actresses are um, exploited in Hollywood and a lot of other, you know, stuff that you can just sort of make up on your, you know, make your own conclusions about. Um, and so, yeah, that's the, the long-ish summary of Mulholland Drive. So, so boys, what do we want to talk about with Mulholland Drive? Um, uh, dude, bruh. Probably my this. second... Probably my second favorite Angelo score um, after Firewalk with me slash Twin Peaks. I just kind of lump those two together. Um, it's a lot different than what you get there, but it's still really good. Yeah, I would have I would have loved to seen um, what the television, I guess, series version of this would have been like because I know it was conceived as a uh, as a pilot first. I just I wonder if that would have ended up as a series or if you know you know it ended up it ended up like it did. But I like thinking about the possibility of like how long he could have taken this wild narrative ride for. I'm so happy that it didn't happen. Like end up as a series though. Yeah, same. <laughs> I um yeah, I I loved I loved the uh, the parallel narratives in this too. I kind of have a similar interpretation in Lost Highway as to what they mean. Like, I definitely think that um, there is, like, the idealized version of events versus, like, the reality um, to a certain extent. So, like, um, Naomi Watts starts as kind of, like, this, um, you know, innocent you know, girl, like, aspiring actress that goes to Hollywood, but she eventually gets, like, suckered into, like, all of, like, the grime and, like, the corruption and, like, the terrible things that happen. Um, it's because she kind of like creates this um, uh, illusion, like a perception of what Hollywood should be to her. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, like it's later revealed in the film, like what it more or less actually is. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like well, like Roger Ebert, I'm a bit hesitant to uh, to accept any explanation for the film. I mean, that's that's arguably what you're supposed to do with a David Lynch movie. Um, and I arguably this film, you know, maybe does it, you know, better than uh, at least some of his other films. You know, I've, I've had, heard some very strong proponents that, like, this is David Lynch's best movie. Like, I have a friend on the Emory newspaper team who's like, Mulholland Drive is the greatest movie ever made, which, you know, I, I could see a strong argument for. I, I oh, don't really agree, but... It's um, I, I don't know. For me, I, I guess I, I've watched it a few times at this point. I, I actually think it's like one of his more straightforward films, to be honest. Like not, not so much as like the straight story of the elephant man, but, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, I think, I think it's like a pretty like obvious critique of, um, Hollywood and like what, what it does to people, especially like how like it like you know, grinds these people up and turns them into kind of, like, these horrible monsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was my, my second David Lynch movie that I watched going after Eraserhead, so this was a pretty big leap between those. It was, like, still weird, but I was, like, ready for something so much more weird than what this actually was. So I, I was almost more taken aback by how, at least on the surface, how plain this is. This still has a lot of 
lynchisms, if you want to call them that, um, to it. You know, it has a lot of his humor. The scene where you find out, you know, Justin Thoreau is getting tucked by Billy Ray Cyrus or, um, you know, the um, the one scene where the guy is, like, trying to assassinate someone and he keeps on just messing shit up. Oh, it's so good. Like, I love that scene. Yeah, no, it's a great scene. And I, I David Lynch clearly had fun with this movie. Um, yeah, even, but, the, even the cowboy is... is... It's, yeah, I think it's supposed to be a bit creepy, but at the same time, it's just like this cowboy sp- <laughs> spitting weird David Lynch lines at you. So yeah, funny. apparently that cowboy like couldn't like remember his lines at all. So like, <laughs> David Lynch just—I think David Lynch or someone like just knew this guy. Like they heard the role and they were like, "Oh yeah, this guy can play him," but he didn't remember a single line. So it took them like forever to make these shoots. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. It is. Um, yeah, and on the whole thing about, you know, whether this was a TV show or not, I think David Lynch has been pretty adamant on, like, you know, the final product. Uh, I mean, he's very adamant on getting final cut on his works, and he's also been very adamant that it's important to work with limitations. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. So I I think he's pretty confident that this was the way it needed to turn out, and I think, you know, once it was decided that this was becoming a movie and not a TV show, then it was certainly adapted in whatever way it needed to be to become a movie. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's amazing as is. And I, I kind of agree with the Ron. I, I don't, I don't really like thinking about, you know, what would this have been as a TV show? You know, I think I just like thinking about what, the, cause I think that kind of distracts from what this is as a movie. I think it's interesting that um, oftentimes like the, the best art comes from limitation not like absolute freedom mm-hmm. um because artistic genius i think a lot of times comes from the artist being able to like work around these limits that um you know they have around each other yeah. or um like use like the materials that are around them to uh you know create something great because mm-hmm. oftentimes like when when an artist has like complete freedom like you know they produce kind of like crap yeah um yeah and you i mean i think you can argue that there's always limitations like i think there's hardly ever an example in in cinema where you know people are really able to do whatever they want like you can say that there's stuff you know where they have a lot of control but like you know even with the return where david lynch you know he got 18 episodes to just entirely direct his own stuff you know he was on a tight schedule and he, you know, as happy as he is with the return and has said he is with the return, he also complained a lot about, you know, how he had to shoot stuff in like two days and he didn't have time to let his ideas breathe like mm-hmm. he would on a movie studio. He had and to then, really fight for that budget too. Um, yeah. Uh, they were gonna they were gonna shoot it with like a much lower budget, but um, he he refused. He actually stepped down for like I think for like a few years. It, he was completely like out of the project until they brought him back with like a bigger budget. Yeah, and then, like, with Eraserhead, you know, he was, you know, he had, like, four years to just, like, kind of work however he wanted on, you know, the project, but it was limited to this, you know, small little studio and, you know, this art student budget or whatever. So I think you, in a lot of ways, you can kind of argue that, you know, he is at times free to, you know, make whatever he wants, but also limited. So I think it is, the it I do agree, it is the way in which he looks at the limitations he has and, you know, figures out how to deal with them. That makes yeah, sense. I guess I guess I really just wanted my Audrey spinoff series. 
I mean, yeah, Audrey's a great character, you know. Um, I it's 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 interesting that this this kind of spawned from the idea of an Audrey spinoff, though. I, I I definitely see the kind of like vague traces of that within the film. I think. Um, I don't. I, I don't know. <laughs> I I guess maybe no no like the general ideas I think of kind of what um you know what that might have been like i don't know maybe that's just me i mean you can maybe see some of that in the the return with where they took audrey's storyline perhaps and how you choose to interpret that but i i think i i like to view mulholland drive as like kind of its own thing um yeah. maybe talking about some more specifics that i really enjoy i mean obviously the this the silencio scenes is just fabulous um you know, whether you understand it or not, it's just a really well-made scene. Um, I love the way David Lynch uses music in a lot of his movies because, you know, it's just enthralling a lot of the times. Like, that performance there, you know, from the singer, from how it's shot, you know, the context of the scene. Uh, so what, you know, Naomi Watts and Laura Haring, I don't know, that's probably how you pronounce it, um, how they're reacting. Uh, it's, it's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of his coolest scenes. Mm -hmm. And then also the scene where um, Naomi Watts' character has her audition and she just kind of pulls off that great performance. I don't know. Yeah, while she's being like sexually assaulted. Yeah. A lot of... <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of interesting aesthetical choices in the film too. Like... Um... Uh, this is the one scene where they're like filming in this like 50s diner and it kind of it's almost like reminiscent of Twin Peaks and that kind of like 50s aesthetic at least to me it was and the uh the, the like all the all the people dancing in that one scene oh yeah the, you mean the intro uh yeah yeah was it the intro? God, I the, the yeah, it's, it has been a bit since I've seen it. Just this. starts with like a purple green screen and a bunch of like people who I don't think I don't think these people actually appear in the movie. Um, I I mean I think it's supposed to be you know just kind of representative of either like the movies that Naomi Watts's character is watching that inspire her to come to Hollywood or you know sort of what she expects out of Hollywood. But, um, I mean, yeah. Actually, there is a there's like a like a plot explanation for that that's like the um it's the jitterbug dance so like she she got like her quote-unquote big break uh for being like the jitterbug star which is like, uh, I don't know, some like weird dance or something in the south i think <laughs> i don't know mm -hmm. um interesting so yeah that's like the the jitterbug i don't know that's what that's what i heard at least interesting um i also think there's like a bit of an ongoing joke that um that david lynch and neil breen are like alternate universe brothers where one <laughs> make like art house work that is masterpieces and the other one is making you know so bad it's good movies and i feel like if you're making that comparison like mulholland drive is probably the most it, it feels the most neil breenish i guess <laughs> not that not that it's bad more just like kind of the the way it's shot and the kind of how it's on location a lot of the time yeah, I think I kind of see what you're saying. But certainly that intro is just like, oh, this is kind of weird, and the, the effects are <laughs> kind of silly. On, on purpose, I think, you know? Yeah. 
but All right yeah. yeah um do we want to move on to our last and final film of the evening it is almost <laughs> midnight <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I've said about all I have to say, at least at the moment, about um, Mulholland Drive. Great movie. Go check it out. It's on HBO Max. It is Persona and Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Interesting. I they're both masterpieces. You need to see Sunset Boulevard. Hey, you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard? I know, I know, I know. Dude. I know. Um... Uh, but Inland Empire, oh god. <laughs> I feel like the only way to talk about Inland Empire is to not talk about Inland Empire. Yeah, kind of. Um, so here's here's an explanation that I was given that I like. I I, I guess I can kind of see. <clears throat> so, do you remember the scenes in in this movie where there's like this girl just like watching TV on a bed, and we we eventually cut back to her and. Laura Dern is also in that room mm -hmm. uh, at, at kind of the end. Yeah. So there's a prevailing theory that that woman is in purgatory and she is watching her life as vignettes. Hmm. And she she kind of has to accept that her life was like this in the end and that's why Laura Dern and her hug and she's like, oh God. <laughs> I, and I, I don't know. I, I think I, I definitely see that. I need to watch this movie again before I say, like, you know, this is definitely what it's about. But I, I find that to be an interesting take, that this is about a woman in purgatory mm. uh, experiencing her life as kind of weird, uh, you know, TV flashbacks. I think that, um, well, this is the case for probably most of his films, but especially for this one, I don't think even David Lynch knows what this film is about. <laughs> that It's very possible that David Lynch has no yeah. idea what he was talking about here. Because um, this is, it's three hours of fucking Sony handheld digital camera footage. Yeah. <laughs> That's in, really in, both, in both Poland and Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah and you really can't you really can't give a summary for that this movie other than that because you could try and say it's about like an actress filming a movie but like really when david lynch was sitting with a cow and he just said it's about a woman in trouble that's that really is the best explanation you're gonna get because yeah. every every time this movie cut to that cigarette hole of you know in the the pantyhose or whatever yeah. that <laughs> looking through like i had my like pepe sylvia board of theories in my head like okay this movie is finally starting to make sense every time it cut to that hole my whole theory just went in the garbage yeah like i think i think i like this movie a lot more in my second watch when i just like did not care about making sense of it <laughs> my first oh, yeah, watch... i actually really like this movie hmm. I, I i i enjoyed it my first watch but I think I appreciate it more in my second one where I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to let this movie take me for a ride. And yeah. it did. And that's what you got to do. Nothing wrong. I, and of course, I, I have nothing wrong with anyone trying to interpret this film, but like, I'm never going to try to do that. I, yeah, before I, before I read that, I was perfectly fine with this just being like David Lynch talking out his ass to me for three <laughs> hours. I think in some ways, like in a weird way, I, I almost feel like I'm on the edge of understanding this movie 
but like I will never actually be there. And I feel like that's kind of how you're supposed to be with a lot of David Lynch movies. So I feel like the fact that I feel like so comfortable in that state here, like kind of that is just so esoteric that I just kind of accept that it's like, I can try to understand this. I can construct my own, you know, meanings out of what I'm being shown, you know, but I'm never really going to understand this. And the idea that maybe David Lynch doesn't understand it himself. I, I think that, you know, it, it it's interesting in its own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Also, this this movie probably has some of the the most like weird ass David Lynch actor appearances that you wouldn't expect. You have Jeremy Irons showing up as like a major plot role uh, early on, disappearing for most of it, and then coming back in the end. You have Terry Crews show up <laughs> for like two seconds. This, uh, this is before Terry Crews was famous, though, right? Was it? It's like two thousand six. Uh oh, was it two thousand? Then yeah, I guess maybe. Um, he probably wasn't. No, I think he was on. No, I think he was on Everybody Hates Chris before this. So like, Hmm. I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, yeah, and yeah, he was in like Adam Sandler movies before. (laughs) So then he was just he already already made it. He already made it. Yeah, he already you know Terry Crews is terrible. uh, he he probably he, loves David Lynch, knowing Terry Crews. Yeah, probably. Um, he, he's he also, just he's just a man. You also have Harry Dean Stanton, who shows up and is just awesome. Because um, he's just Harry Dean Stanton. Because he's cause he's Harry Dean. And you he's also have uh, the famous. There, there's a David Lynch. Uh, there are a lot of funny David Lynch clips taken from behind the scenes of Inland Empire. I feel like, but one of the ones that you know people point to is there's this one where he just seems to like at random say that he needs like a a 16 year old girl without a leg or something like that, and <laughs> a, a beautiful Japanese girl who is Eurasian, and that that girl, monkey. Yeah, and that girl is there with uh, Terry Crews, and then she appears again in Twin Peaks: The Return as the the woman who doesn't have any eyes. Who oh, that's ends her. Being that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I actually like realized that while watching it, and re- was like, "There's no way." And then we looked it up, and lo and behold, <laughs> that's well, the same girl. Well, yeah, because I, I, I was looking it up because you, you mentioned the clip about the, the David Lynch asking for Eurasian, and you're like, I, you're like, this is probably her. And I was like, well, what's her deal? Because like, she looked kind of familiar. I was like, have I seen her in anything before? Um, and I had yet to watch The Return, so I, I think she just looked like another actress I had seen before. Um, but uh, we, Well, I think, I I think you would admit... I think you would at least met her character in uh, oh. the weird ethereal space in episode two. You're right. You're right. I did. Yeah. I forgot about that. Anyway, um, I'm not oh, sure God. how I feel about feel about the character played by an Asian actress turning out to be uh, Laura Dern. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's fucking. It's all weird, dude. People people dance to locomotion in this movie. It's. Uh, yeah, that was a scene that happened. Uh, <laughs> um, the part is when the the funny rabbits show up and they they're like, "Hey, we're rabbits." My favorite part is the Laura Dern face. If you've seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh huh. Oh, the Laura Dern face. I mean, this movie really is just kind of a ride where you're just like, 
No, he didn't just do that. David Lynch is <laughs> so fucking yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more kinda, or like, less. Oh, uh, man. I, I feel like I would have really liked to see in this movie in the theaters and just kind of be, like, throwing my popcorn to the side, being like, what the fuck, David Lynch? <laughs> I really yeah, hope the Netflix show is, is uh, shot on camcorder. Oh, yeah. my God. If only. Half of this movie is in Polish for no reason. No, uh, not half, but, like... A third. Some of this movie? Yeah, a third. A third is probably fair. Dude, I got a friend. William H. Macy is in this for, like... Oh, Two wait, seconds yeah, for no reason. I got a French DVD uh, of this movie, and um, for some reason, there's no English subtitles for like the Polish parts. So I, I, <laughs> I had my friend Damon like translating the fucking French subtitles. Oh my god! <laughs> into into English for us. That was so funny. Uh, when when you sent me the the file for it, like at first they were like talking, and I, I think it was Polish, and there were no subtitles, and I'm like, it and. I, I thought, like, maybe it was something wrong with the file, but then I just realized, oh, no, this is just how the movie is. <laughs> um, I can't imagine watching this movie in theaters. Like, I just, like... It'd be so good. Something about this, like, I can't imagine this coming on a big screen. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the digital aspect to it does make it seem almost kind of like it's like a... Um, a Blair Witch Project kind of deal where it's like you should really be watching this on like your computer or your television at home or something. Yeah. Um, like it, it, it's almost better the the shittier you watch it. I want to watch this shit on IMAX screen, man. Yeah. Well, I wanna I wanna find a, a VHS copy and like put it on a CRT and <laughs> then see what happens. I doubt a VHS VHS copy even exists. Uh, yeah. Probably, but yeah, I don't know. I I, don't, I had a lot of fun with this one. I remember they they had the the zoom back camera moment towards the end where they were just like, "Yep, this is still part of the movie," and Nick and I were just losing our shit. <laughs> oh yeah, when it when it zooms out and Nikki just gets up after being like stabbed. Oh yeah, that part was so good. Oh my goodness, there's just like I you know like we said it's it's just so hard to talk about this movie because like what is this movie it's uh, all the all the different vignettes like you're so close to making something out yet so far you you think you have an inkling of what's happening and then david lynch just throws you for a loop like you said the the whole cutting back to the cigarette burn it's just like so so much of this is just abstract trying to trying to figure it out Mm-hmm. And and I think it I think it works. I think it works together. You know, whether it actually makes sense is another story, but I think, you know, some people might say it, it is just, you know, a, a cut together of these, you know, short films that he was making as experiments and that, you know, this really has no right being a three hour movie. But I, I think it works for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean you can certainly like kind of make out what it's kind of trying to say like there is enough there that you can kind of interpret something you won't know exactly what but you can get something out of this it isn't like completely incomprehensible but there's certainly a lot of abstractions you have to deal with and trying to figure it out but like Duran says it's almost best that you don't even try and just let it take you for a ride mm-hmm yeah, I mean, 
certainly try to interpret this film, but I would highly recommend a viewing in which you don't try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you're trying to interpret this movie as you're watching it for the first time, like get some Advil, like make sure you <laughs> get some water, you know, uh, maybe a cup of tea if that helps. Just like you know, just pre prepare yourself because yeah, <laughs> we, we can't really uh, understate you know how how whack this movie is. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there are three people capable of understanding this movie, and that that is uh, David Lynch, Jack Nance, and the the bank teller from Twin Peaks, who de David Lynch definitely like explained all of his deepest, darkest secrets to that bank teller. And two of those people are dead. <laughs> and David Lynch is the only man left. And he will die soon. He just puts uh, he just puts <laughs> an explanation in one of the weather reports inexplicably one day. I hate that. God. Well, <laughs> he just he just does it. He just so he's like, I know I've been avoiding explanation this whole time, but you know what? I'll throw you a bone, dude. I want to like get into the deep lore side of um, David Lynch fans and like see them trying to like I don't know analyze the weather reports and like the numbers to like reveal the inner like the inner sequence of what do the numbers mean and like revealing as an s film I, I bet there's like there's like a diehard dedicated lynch fan base doing that right now oh absolutely that's you what know, twin peaks magazine got up to after twin peaks ended good good on good on them you know if, if they're if they're having a fun time doing that you know good on them that's True. how they're enjoying the content let them enjoy the content but at the same time, why are you doing this? At the same time, I will still laugh at them. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> All right. I saw, I saw some people getting like really salty online about like debating over like whether watching like synced up, you know, episodes of Twin Peaks in order to understand the meaning like what was like valid evidence or not. And I was, <laughs> yeah, no, because some people were like, actually the you know if you sync up the last two episodes they actually parallel one another and you know that's how you decipher the actual of the final episode of twin peaks and i'm like uh, i i don't agree that that's a valid you know like that that's the key to everything i i think syncing up stuff could you know help point out parallels in places but i think that's the most you're gonna get out of it is just illustrating some parallels just go outside. Yeah, just go outside. <laughs> yeah. That's what David Lynch would tell you if you asked him anyway. No, he would say, just go outside. He would say, you fuckhead. That's the stupidest thing you interpreted right there. <laughs> that was him responding to the four-hour Twin Peaks Explained video. Yeah. Oh, did you guys watch that in preparation for this podcast? Uh, uh, Red Letter Media's review of Twin Peaks The Return. I'm not gonna cut it, buddy. <laughs> I know uh, I don't understand Twin Peaks. I'm ashamed. <laughs> Speaking of Twin Peaks, do we wanna do we wanna say anything about the return like briefly before we wrap up, or are we, are we just feeling good on Twin Peaks? Sure, I'll give uh, I'll give my um, interpretation of uh, my latest interpretation of what I think the return might be about. Um. So Twin Peaks The Return, uh, if we want to give a brief explanation as to what it is, it's Twin Peaks 25 years later. Stop asking questions. 
Um, but I, I think the series for me has taken on a meaning of commentary on <laughs> nuclear weapons, believe it or not. And this all kind of stems from episode eight. Um, I think that David Lynch sees an evil that, uh, kind of, kind of America is the bad guy kind of attitude where, um, the invention of nuclear weapons was so devastatingly awful for humanity that this kind of, uh, you know, the seed of Bob, you know, spawns from it. And I, I think there, David Lynch sees, uh, the nuke as a turning point in American history where, or not even essentially American history, but like just basically about like the evil of humanity and how such this evil vile thing exists and that we would do this to other human beings. Obviously the, the song that plays there kind of interpret, uh, the title of the song that plays during episode eight kind of goes, um, to this interpretation and this might be completely wrong i'm just basically throwing the song title is um Thenity for the victims of hiroshima right yeah so Thenity for the victims of hiroshima and i just i think episode eight um kind of touches upon this larger theme of america's not the good guy and i think twin peaks kind of touches on this it's you know, the, the original series was this uh, very bright and cheery, despite all of the, like, evil things that were happening. It was kind of this bright, cheery, it, like, had this fun tone to it, despite what it was talking about. Um, and it, it has this very, like, 50s aesthetic vibe, where, um, you know, it's the nuclear family. Everything was going to be fine after this. And you return to Twin Peaks 25 years later, and it's so evidently obvious that like nothing has been okay since this happened and um you know i haven't fully worked out this but you know bas basically just like there was a turning point in time when we set off those nukes for the first time where nothing was ever the same and this kind of great evil uh emerged from it i agree with you to a certain extent so i definitely think that um it's no coincidence that um like bob who gets spawned out of judy's mouth or whatever like in the middle of this nuke scene because like that does like represent um humanity's greatest evil and then you have like the um the picture of the nuke like behind gordon cole's desk and gordon cole's played by david lynch of course although mm -hmm. um i there's a couple things that don't really work with me for this, like, I, I, and, like, um, I, I definitely think, like, elements of this are, like, important throughout, but as, like, a, as, like, a framework for interpreting the, the entirety of the return, I guess it, it kind of sketches me out. Oh, because, definitely. Um, like, there isn't, uh, when, when, so when Twin Peaks came out, the original series, like, the Cold War was, like, kind of, like, just ending, you know? So, like, yeah. um... Well, I kind of, I kind of attach this to the interpretation of, like, meta-violence on, on TV in general, that kind of, it, it's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of attached to that in my understanding. And like I said, okay. I haven't completely figured all of this out. Yeah, yeah. Um, um but, but... but it's something I've, I've kind of been thinking about. The timeline is a little bit strange to me, 
because yeah. um like the the height of these heroes were during cold war right and when yeah even the year like the original series aired um there was like of course this tension that still existed but even then like the tensions are a bit subsiding and especially like 25 years later um there is much less of a threat of nuclear war than you know there were there than there was when the original series aired so i guess that um I don't yeah know. yeah no i i i get it i yeah. mean it's there, there are certainly holes you can poke in this and you know i'm just kind of spitballing ideas but i mm-hmm. i i like to believe that i have something here yeah i agree um, i mean I- I think that's kind of the whole point of the return in Twin Peaks in general is that like, you know, while you can sort of come up with the overall, you know, interpretations that perhaps, you know, explain most of the series, you know, for for the most part is a TV show filled with a bunch of different characters and story arcs. And, you know, while it all comes together, like pretty cohesively, you know, there are a lot of different things you're supposed to be getting out of this and you can't come up with one singular overall interpretation. As yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I do like foremost think it's like um, a critique of nostalgia, though. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I can definitely still agree with that too, mm-hmm. and I, I think, yeah, that definitely still holds holds true even with you know that you know all that I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, because certainly a lot of people, you know, the nostalgia, they have nostalgia for that 50s nuclear family era, even though that's, like, objectively one of the worst points in time in American history. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, even despite interpreting, you know, whatever you might interpret the series, I think it's just a joy to watch, even if you're just in it for the characters and just for the weird David Lynch shit that happens. Um you know, I I love that one scene where where Bobby is just like looking through the car window at this like lady that's just screaming at him and honking her horn, and she's got like this you know weird sick daughter behind her, and I think the scene is acted like perfectly because it's just this great blend of David Lynch dialogue that you know is almost delivered like an Oblivion NPC, like just how like the the lady is like she's she has this weird like scream that's like ah ah. Ah, and she's like not but she's not doing anything she's not like leaving her car she's not like talking to the police officer who's right next to her she's just kind of sitting there and just like screaming and i'm I'm like i you know there's certainly ways to interpret it but it's also just like it's just a it's a fun scene to watch you know because it's just so it's twin peaks you know true true yeah man all right well uh deron do you have anything i guess you did talk about the return are we all done with the return <laughs> if so then uh, well yeah i mean it's it's hard to keep going just because we did do like a near three hour episode on the return so if if you do want to hear me and deron ramble about that um yeah i don't think i have much to add besides what out. i said there that, that's pretty exhaustive yeah. in my interpretation however um you know there all there is always like the individual scenes that we could talk about and like characters and stuff like that but i don't yeah. really think that um we necessarily have the time to do that uh <laughs> yeah. yeah no i i think i think since you guys already did an episode like i think it's right that we just like briefly touch on the return yeah um, um yeah so but but i guess before we end since Rhett's here is there anything that you want to 
um, say about the return? Because I'm, um, I'm interested if you have like a like a take on it. No, I think I think I left the return. Um, you know, I, I left it very con confused. I think rightfully so, especially after that last episode, because um, I think it's it's supposed to be confusing. It's supposed to be kind of confounding. Um, I certainly understand and sympathize with the people who, you know, might be, you know, irritated by the ending that it's not a nice, you know, uh, wrap up, even though, you know, a lot of people will point to, you know, episode 17 is like that that's your happy ending for Twin Peaks. And it's like, well, yeah, but episode 18 still exists and I, I enjoy it for what it is. And I, and I like, you know, the open ending and the interpretation, but I certainly sympathize with the people who might, you know, who want a happy ending. Because even when I'm interpreting the ending, you know, I I am drawn to those, you know, theories that people make where it's like, oh yeah, in the end, that actually is. Because I, I see, I'm, you know, equally people theorizing that uh, the ending, Cooper totally failed. Um, you know, he's stuck in like an infinite loop and he's never, you know, nothing is ever going to be right. But then other people are theorizing, no, because it's the, the fireman set it all up in the beginning and, you know, he actually, you know, this is actually exactly where they need to be to find Judy and for Laura to beat her. And I'm I'm drawn to those positive interpretations just because I'm like, I, I just kind of want these characters to have a happy ending regardless of, you know, what thematic implications that might bring. <laughs> mm. Sympathize with the people who might want a more concrete ending despite the fact that I'm okay with the open ending. But I, you know, I like being able to, you know, with the open ending, you can kind of have it both ways and you can really take it however you want. You know, you can take Twin Peaks as abstractly as you want it, you know, and enjoy interpreting, you know, the scenes as whatever commentary you might want. Or you can take it as literally as you want and, you know, theorize endlessly about, you know, what all these little details mean and you know whether cooper was successful in his mission or whether he was a complete failure and is stuck in an infinite loop of just pain and suffering with laura yeah i don't know i mean that ev that ending is like absolutely devastating <laughs> i don't really know yeah. how you can come off of it kind of positive thinking yeah. that there's some hopeful light here even, it's just yeah, like exactly like even like divorced from like any kind of interpretation or uh, like close reading or anything like that it just you just like what do what what does it make you feel what, what does that ending make you feel yeah i and i mean yeah not to put down anybody who wants to think yeah. positive about this but like I don't think you're looking at all of the all the signs here to, well, to think that this is a positive ending. Well, I think what people are saying there is certainly not in, you know, that it's a positive ending for Laura, but I think the the theory goes that, you know, Judy is in that house um, and that this is sort of the final confrontation that you're getting here. And so when Laura remembers like who she is and like lets out her scream or whatever, I do think that people who theorize uh -oh. that are making some jumps <laughs> of logic, but like yeah. that that they're saying that when the show when the, the power cuts and it cuts to black, you know, because Judy is you know uh, powered through electricity, and that if you're arguing that the the show is a criticism of violence on TV that ergo stopping the tv stopping the flow of electricity that is the, the the peaceful ending to twin peaks that you know uh 
you know, it takes the, the violence off of the TV, if you will. I, you can, I don't, I'm probably butchering people's <laughs> theory, but God, I, I hate that so much. <laughs> I, you know, I certainly understand people's desire for it. And I mean, it's, it, it sort of also makes sense why people might want that because they might be like, you know, well, why did the, why did the fireman say all this stuff in the beginning? You know, why did he, give cooper all these hints that apply to the end of the series if it was not part of their plan i guess that's i think that's the thing that throws the people for a loop is that like the fireman knew yeah. about the from the, unless he was i don't just, know i always i always chalk it up to them miscalculating what they were actually capable of mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah i don't yeah. know that's just kind of, it, that's like just it's kind me. of like uh like cooper is like hubris right he, like, yeah. he already he already solved the murder, thinks... and, yet, and yet like uh, the murder of Laura Palmer, and yet like he keeps like going back to this, and he keeps like trying to like mess with it and like fuck with it, and like he literally like goes back in time to try to like save Laura Palmer from being murdered, even though like um, you know that's not going to bring like any solace to like uh, anyone around her. Yeah. Um... Yeah. I mean, yeah, and usually I, I chalk that up to the the whole, um, you know, the fact that the fireman said it, you know, it's like Philip Jeffries shows like the infinity loop, I think essentially telling Cooper that it's like, you, when you go down this path, you're going to be stuck in, you know, this loop forever, and you're not really going to get out of this if you keep trying to save everyone, and that, you know, if you're asking at that point, you know, what was the fireman saying to Cooper? He was he was just setting him up for the next part of the mission that's just going to go on endlessly. So I'm sure there's like some sort of clue or fireman detail, you know, down the line after Laura, you know, screams or whatever that just keeps Cooper going on this endless quest that, you know, just doesn't bring any absolution. Well, we'll know when the, when the Netflix series drops because... God, I hope not. It's a Chet Desmond spinoff, <laughs> dude. I I would, dude. I wanna. I I'll, love I'll, him. I wanna know, dude. I'll, I'll be what so. Went I'll be so pissed if like Lynch continues Twin Peaks, um, uh, chronologically. I mean, um, because I love this ending so much. <laughs> I think it's yeah. like, it's like it's like perfect. Well, yeah. well. So you know, Nick and I have both discussed our interpretations of the ending. You know, I guess I could go back and you know look at what you guys said because I haven't seen, listened to your guys' episode. But what, why did why do you love the ending so much, Duran? Because um, okay. So I, I argued like in the podcast uh, that we did that um, so there's um, like what happens in the actual plot. And then also, like, um, what what's, like, on the meta level, right? So, um, I believe that Cooper, like, tries to go back in time to save Laura and, like, fails. And then um, Laura's, like, transplanted to, like, this, like, weird, uh, like, alternate reality or whatever. And, like, he's, like, he keeps, like, pursuing her, essentially. Um, and he's kind of, like, unable to, like, let it go um and this reminds me of how like 25 years later after the original series ended and like the movie dropped and like that was supposed to be like the ending of, of the series people are still like obsessed about like the mystery and like the they, they want to see like a continuation of the narrative even though like more or less um it could have been wrapped up in that happy ending quote-unquote happy ending with um 
Laura Palmer, like, surviving and overcoming her trauma. But instead, like, because of Cooper's, like, hubris and his, his like, inability to let, um, to let any of this go, he, like, just keeps pursuing Laura until eventually, um, he gets to the point of, like, no return. He basically, like, messes everything up for everyone. So, um, like, like, I read online that, um, it could have been, like, uh, Judy, like, finding Laura in this parallel universe, and, like, that's what Laura's screen or something. I don't know. But, um, anyway, I, I do think that, like, the ending is supposed to be taken as, like, a kind of a bad ending, and that, um, like, the cycle of, of violence will continue because, like, Cooper reinserts, like, um, Laura into that same situation when when she was able to break that cycle of violence at the end of Firewalk With Me. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the whole thing is largely about uh, Dale just being unable to accept that she is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I love the... I, I think I told Rhett prematurely, I'm like, you can't change the past, Coop, before he even started episode 18. And I don't think you realize, like, what I really meant by that. Maybe you did, but, like... I mean, but he did change the past. Like... he So he literally changed the events he, of the past, well, yes. the outcome is the same. Yeah. Um. Well, okay. He actually made it much worse. <laughs> because, like... Yeah. Yeah. He, he 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 made it so that um instead of the murder being solved and also like laura being free of her trauma she's like brought back into her trauma and also like there is the whole like fucker with judy and like the possibility of you know bad stuff happening in the future yeah anyway um we yeah yeah I, I think yeah. I think I think the whole stuff with Judy kind of throws a wrench in a lot of the theories and like is what makes things complicated. Like certainly, if the aspect of Judy were not there and it were more cut and dry, like Cooper was just trying to get Laura back to you know her mom and trying to repair this, like that. Yeah, that interpretation would definitely be a lot more cut and dry. And I, I think you can maybe argue that Judy only exists, you know, to throw a wrench in theories. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I think like um, I. I'm not really, like, concerned about, um, I guess, like, theory or, like, things, like, making sense within, like, the narrative of, the, of like, the show. Mm -hmm. um, I like to look at it more on, like, the meta level, because I find it, like, a bit more interesting, like, on a level of analysis, because um, I think, like, the, the show's, like, critique of nostalgia also is, um, it, it's, it's a critique of, like, the audience's nostalgia, like, towards the original series as well. And also, yeah. um, it has a lot to do with aging as well. Because, like, this is, you know, 25 years later, all of your favorite characters are, like, really, like, old, and, like, they kind of, like, look, like, a little bit, like, broken down and, like, depressed. Um, and, and that's that's when I was saying, like, way earlier in this, in this episode about how it feels elegiac, too, um, because of that, there, there's that aspect of aging. And that's kind of why I connected with the Irishman also, because, like, the Irishman is also about aging. Interesting. Criteria the Irishman is Netflix never a movie I would associate with Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it just feels like a like a capstone to, mm -hmm. um, not just career, 
and Irish Pink is like a capstone to Scorsese's, to me. I mean, yeah, it's 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 both them kind of reflecting on the work that kind of made their careers, you know, what they were with Scorsese mm-hmm. reflecting on gangster movies. Yeah, and, and like finding like this like emptiness to like the character of the gangster, which like really never came across in any of his like earlier gangster movies, because like the character the the character that. Um, Robert De Niro plays an Irishman is like very empty. Like there is like no like soul to him basically, and like he ends um his life, you know, alone in like a retirement home with like none of his like family or friends. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. And I and I kind of connected it to, I guess, how like at the end of Twin Peaks, um, Dale's like inability to let like any of this go like and makes him end up in like a much worse situation and like the world in a much worse situation than it was before yeah i mean yeah like he could have easily stayed with you know Janie e and just kind of let everyone in twin peaks have their happy ending once bob was vanquished mm-hmm. um yeah again the only thing that kind of confounds that is the whole judy plan yeah right All right. Well, um, it is uh, twelve thirteen a.m., <laughs> so uh, I think we've been going for about three hours. So <laughs> I think uh, two hours, about... fifty-eight minutes, and forty-one seconds—the length oh of Inland goodness. Empire. I guess. Oh my god! You could watch Inland Empire, or you could watch this. <laughs> Definitely watch Inland Empire. It's much more interesting yeah. than this. Podcast. Yeah. Unless uh, it's right. do. This is, you know, made by three college kids just kind of fucking around talking about David Lynch. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, it was a very lovely discussion, and I'm glad that we had it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Red, thanks for joining us. No problem. Uh, Love love me talking about some Lynch. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. uh, Thank you all for listening. Uh, We will see you on the next episode, which... We'll be soon. Should be Friday. Hopefully Friday. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see if it'll it happens. Be, it'll, be, it'll be soon. It'll be soon. Good what are you talking about? Uh, we're not even sure yet. I just want to <laughs> plan, plan on doing episodes every Friday just so we can have content. Nice. We're, uh, we're planning on watching Satan Tango on Friday, so we're probably going to record a podcast on that. Nice. We'll see. Yeah, I guess if anything, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Hell yeah. All, All right. right. Peace out. Peace. See ya.